Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. I told you about strawberry fields. You know the place where nothing is real. Well, here's another place you can go. Hello everyone, welcome to Once We Dream. In today's episode, I talked to comedian Tim Heidecker. Oh my God, I loved him. I love Tim too. <laughs> you know what I love? I love his show on cinema. It's so right? funny, I know, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, he's brilliant. I also love anything by Tim and Eric. I also get a lot out of Tim's kitchen tips. Yeah, he's the type of guy that, you know, you, you start watching, you're like, why am I watching this? What, <laughs> I am I doing? what am I doing watching this? I know, and then, and then you're addicted. And you just can't, yeah, you can't stop. You can't take your eyes <laughs> it's true. off and you're still watching. <laughs> This guy, and I don't know if it's because he reminds me so much of guys from high school, like the, you know, yeah, some like the, of our, the funny the guys from high school. Well, yeah, yeah. Of yeah. course, the funny guys, but you know, um, I don't know if it's that or what, but he's. No, he's just charismatic. He is charismatic. Anyway. Ridiculous. Yeah. So you get to talk to him. Okay, good. Yes. Go and, and actually, Tim got me some major cred with uh, my friend, who I won't name, or maybe I will, Jeff. Uh, who kept telling me, Jeff, he kept telling me to make the podcast simpler. You know, I I kept saying like, Jeff, listen to my podcast. And he would listen and he'd be like, oh, it's too complicated. And, you know, he was like, make it easier, which obviously I did not uh, listen to in any way. But when Tim tweeted about it, Jeff totally walked back his comments. So uh, Tim got me. Some... How did he? How did he walk it back? How did you? Oh, was, so, no, sorry, was just... Tim was right. I yeah, was yeah. He was like, "Oh no, I love it." So Tim, thank oh. you. Tim got me big points with Jeff. Anyways, uh, since Tim has a great deal of knowledge about the Beatles, I thought um, it might be fun to have him on to do a little Beatles chat. So, Absolutely. I, yeah, yeah. So I invited him, and he came, which was amazing. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, and so for people who don't know, Tim Heidecker is a comedian, writer, musician, podcaster, actor, very busy man, Mm -hmm. Um, half of the comedy duo Tim and Eric. He's a musician who recently put out a fantastic album called Fear of Death, Uh, and he currently co-hosts a parody film review web series, which we just talked about, called On Cinema. Uh, which I love and everyone should check out. And uh, he's also the host of the podcast Office Hours Live with Tim Heidecker. 
I haven't so, seen that. It's great. He's so talented. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. Give me something to do. Yep. Make it off. Um, okay, so how was your conversation? Well, I assumed Tim would be cool and funny because, like, he's always yeah. cool and funny. But, and he was, obviously. But I was also so pleased to learn that he is just a super lovely guy, really thoughtful about the Beatles. And, uh, and I was blown away by how much of the breakup series he had absorbed and considered. So I loved my chat with Tim. Well, I can't wait to hear. Okay, well, let's just jump in. We are just jumping in mid-conversation here, and I had just asked him how he had heard about One Sweet Dream. Who misses much? Oh, yeah. She's well acquainted with the touch of the velvet hand Like a lizard on a windowpane I was going to say, you know, I was introduced to your podcast, I think through John Worster. I don't know if you know him or not, but he recommended it on Twitter and yep. I started listening to it and it was so good. This is how good it was. The sound was so bad that I kept, <laughs> I, I pushed through because I was like, I was like, oh my God, it was driving me nuts because the first couple at least were like very tough, but the content was so good that I just kind of like stuffed it. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny that, that's how good thank you i take that as a huge compliment that you stuck with it oh. I, i've just listened to my stuff recently i'm like why didn't i get a mic before um but uh we were a little technically unsophisticated at first and you know we had a couple of technical mishaps however we did have the story you know we had done a tremendous amount of research and work prior to recording anything. So that that part we had down. It took us a while to get it together audio-wise, and I just wanna say, if you're digging into it, I promise the audio gets better. We wanted to revisit the Beatles breakup because the way the story had been told after the breakup impacted the Beatles story so significantly. So we felt like we needed to start there. Well, you're challenging an orthodoxy and like a, you know, very structural ideology, uh, especially in the breakup series that was was uncomfortable for me at points to listen to. And uh, I didn't it didn't um, anger me necessarily, but it did make me rethink the way I think about things. If something like that happens, it's great. It's a great thing to to be. Uh, to, to see an alternate side of things. So I appreciate it. What made you feel uncomfortable? Well, I mean, just the unfortunate way in which the story got told and spun out and became gospel, literal. Yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. basically, I look at the Beatles as not as a religion, but as a just a great story, uh, a better story than the Bible. And, <laughs> you know, and... Some stuff was just cast in stone, and it influenced the way I uh, learned about the Beatles. It, inf you know, it influenced the way I thought about them as individuals, and it influenced the way. And and a lot of that had to do with the the PR genius of Lennon and, yep. and Yoko, and people like Jan Wenner. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I became a, I guess, a hardcore Beatles fan, it would have been. 1988 or something. It would have been right around when that Imagine John Lennon book came out. It was a book and a documentary, I think, that came out. And it was a very big propaganda piece about 
about, you know, a man of peace and a man of uh, wisdom and wasn't fully, you know, varnished to be just a perfect person, but certainly no thought or concept of him being a junkie up until very recently, you know what I mean? In, in this, in the narrative. Um, so st- stuff like that, you know, and influence just the way, he, you know, he was my guy. I probably, when I was, a, and I'm sure that's the same for a lot of, I think, teenage boys, there's a certain oh, definitely. masculinity and sort of rebelliousness to him. That's, that's also true. And also part of what's great about him. Um, yeah. so it's not like you just have to throw everything out and start fresh, but I guess it was just the core sort of challenge to my, which, you know, I've done more research since I was 13 I've read more books and yeah. uh, listened to other podcasts. And stuff. So I was, I was sort of primed for rethinking the dynamics and the relationships between, you know, chiefly between Paul and, and John. Also, you know, I, what's really struck me in the past few years, especially now with the Get Back movie and so much focus on that period is what a short period of time that was. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, going from the White Album at the end of 68, really with almost, I mean, very short period of, of a break. You have to imagine there's holidays going on in there. And there's, you know, there's like, I know for me, when Thanksgiving comes around, I try to yeah. like clear my schedule until like mid-January, you know, like that feels like very much nobody's doing anything. I don't know if that was the case back then, but but just to go from like, put out the White Album, this major piece of work, also just clearing their attics of all their songs, of all their, yeah, 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 yeah. like so many things have been building up. And then to come back in like the day, I mean, imagine the day after New Year's Day. Oh my God. It's like, who wants to go to work? Who wants to do anything that day? <laughs> Paul McCartney. That's yeah, who- <laughs> Paul McCartney, that's about <laughs> it. But I can imagine just that feeling. But the time for that Let It Be period to go from, uh, you know, um, that's basically a month. And then of course stuff happens the rest of that year. They return to it. And, but I always pictured in my head when I was a kid that they're in that studio for months and there's just, Oh, for sure. You know, yeah. But it's only a few weeks that they're really under the spotlight like that. So that's the other thing that it's come into focus that stuff was happening so quickly. Everything was so compressed. Um, yeah that and like yeah. you you brought this up a few times on the podcast about Paul's sojourn to, to his depression uh, in Scotland it wasn't Sorry. that it wasn't like an era of Paul McCartney yeah you know it was a couple weeks or whatever it was so well and i make that point purposefully and he's going hard into it right now which like paul could you stop other people are doing a better job than you and mm-hmm. i'm just about to put out an episode about why he's going so hard on John S for the divorce. And, you know, he was devastated. John wanted it. You know, I didn't want it. I couldn't, you know. (laughs) Nobody thinks you did, Paul. Nobody. (laughs) The point that I'm making right now is that he is willing to trade his own hero story, which is actually pretty incredible, for being let off the hook as being the guy that broke up the Beatles. The other thing you bring up so so, uh, smartly that doesn't get talked about is Paul had so many options during that those last few years. He had outs. He had things that he could, you know, take a left turn into doing. Yeah. The the guy that didn't need the Beatles was Paul for sure. Yeah. So he could have he could take that angle this year and go, uh, you know, it it was it was there was this meeting and John did say those words. That's yeah. 
well-established. Yeah. You know, I didn't like, it didn't end the way it should. It ended kind of weird. Yeah. And there's lots of reasons for that. But on, honestly, I should have been okay with it because I was in a really good place. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, it's totally true. Um, Ray Connolly said that when Paul put out his first album, John was like, oh, he's been practicing doing that for years. You know, so that's the thing. I right. think John was thinking Paul was doing that, you know, practicing to do his own production and produce whatever he wanted. I think Paul just does stuff because he's an insane workaholic. Right. You know, but he certainly had no real need for the Beatles in terms of skills. You know, John and George both got Spectre. Paul did it on his own. Like to me, if he goes to Scotland for six weeks, it was really three and a half weeks, but whatever. Say he yeah. goes for even six weeks. You know, I know a lot of people that have been fired or lost their jobs and it, they're really depressed for a long time. So if the biggest band in the world breaks up, you know, six weeks seems pretty normal to me. Yeah. And so like, it, it's not something to be romanticized. I mean, we can. And I, when I was younger, I love that story that like, you know, he was so desperately upset and that Linda saved him. Right. But now that I'm older and I hear that and it's like a month and we've got the photos of Paul in December and he looks super happy, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. yeah. <laughs> no, I, I don't think he was really thrilled. Like this isn't what he wanted. But one of the things that I'd like to do is that I did a little bit in Instant Karma is lay out how much John was communicating through the press in the fall of 69 and early 70. He was giving a lot of feelers to Paul. He was doing a lot of shout outs. I don't think Paul was listening, actually. But if he had been, I think he would have seen that there was room to negotiate and come back and offer I mean, something. I I mean, aside from like the terrible mistake of the Rolling Stone interview, the Lennon remembers diarrhea of the mouth, mm -hmm. um, find him in a terrible place with just the tape rolling and and probably Jan Werner just like kind of picking at the at the scab a little bit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, aside from that, every time you see him on any talk show throughout the seventies, he's very cordial and very kind towards Paul and yep. goes out of his way to make this sort of telling what we all want to hear. Like, well, we do talk and I've speak to him all the time or maybe not all the time, but, and, and all these very kind of kind entrees to, to the idea of a, you know, in 74, he's on, he's on gray whistle test saying it, it's, it's not happening because it's not, we're all four of us aren't in the same place, but I'm not against it and all that stuff. He's very chill about it and feels like, you know, he's not coming out and like slamming Paul that much. Uh, no, but, no, I not mean, at maybe, all, especially at that time. Do you know, for three years in a row, he said he would do the Beatles in 73, 74 and 75. He is on air saying that, yeah, you know what, I, I, I would consider doing the Beatles, you know, I would do it again. And it's sort of, he gets increasingly enthusiastic about it. It's kind of funny to think that like, that bo Lennon buys into the myth of the Beatles more than almost as much as anybody, because uh, in, in, in when George quits right away, John is sort of just saying, well, let's bring in Eric Clapton, right? Like, so so for John, the Beatles isn't the Fab Four necessarily at that moment, but it sure is a few years later when it's like cemented as like, well, there's no Beatles without the four of us, right? Like, so it's interesting. Well, no, he, he does say often, he says in 80, well, let me put it this way, you know, 
the Beatles could have existed if it was just me and Paul. Oh, okay. But, so he's, and I then mean, he tells and he old. tells Ray Connolly all the time, and Ray Connolly has printed this that he would say all the time the Beatles were me and Paul. Right. So well, okay. fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but <laughs> Listen, he, he does we're go gonna back talk- and forth. We're going to talk and you're going to know more than me. That's just how this is going to go. <laughs> well, you know, kind of pathetically right now, I kind of know more than everyone about John's <laughs> interviews in the 70s. Yeah. Not about everything, just John and Paul's interviews in the 70s. And yeah. that's why it's really hard right now when Paul's coming out and saying things. I'm like, that's such bullshit, man. I know your interviews. Like, you know, saying that he was depressed for so long in the 70s. And I'm like, no, I know that 1974 interview with Linda McCartney when she was like, Paul's the happiest he's ever been. He's so happy right now. I think what's kind of like the unknowable here is what does Paul actually know, right? Like, what does he actually remember? That isn't just what he's said in interviews or what he's what other people, you know what I mean? Like so much of what I always make this joke that Paul always says, you know, you know, right. He says, (laughs) you know, it's like a tick. And he says that because you know, you know what he's about to say. right? (laughs) (laughs) No, because if you watch that Hulu thing with Rick Rubin, it was the same. It was maybe not all the same, but it was a lot of the same stories that felt a little like memorized or at least like it feels just a little like he remembers the stories he's told, not necessarily the things that happened, which get colored and changed and become, you know, tall tales essentially yeah, sometimes. Yeah, like colorized um, in his mind. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the one I saw recently that I thought was really good was, it's the, I think it's the dude from Blur or one of those bands, the guy with the big glasses, the Brit pop band. Uh, mm-hmm. I, anyways, okay. he interviewed Paul. Uh, in front of an audience, but yes, yes, I know what you're talking about, like at Liverpool Institute or something. Yeah, yeah. But he got into it good with Paul, and there was, I think, there was one or two things that I'd never, never heard before. And one was like when John and Paul were like teenagers that they used to do prank phone calls. I was like, I didn't know about that. I didn't hear. You don't hear that in any old tales of them as teenagers. So I was like, oh, he's digging deep, or else like if he's talking to the right person, they're sparking interesting memories that haven't been written down. I think so. I think if you got Paul outside of the media, you know, chatting with him, but I think he's probably extremely guarded. I don't know if you got the opportunity to read. They did. They serialized like 15 songs from his book that's coming up. Oh, yeah, I didn't. I looked at some of the headlines. I just saw like the erotic headline. I didn't get into the whole thing. <laughs> you don't want to get into Paul's erotic recollections? No. I do. Well, I mean, you're, I... In luck. you're in luck. There were none. But it, I don't know if it's the editing or the way Paul's brain works right now. <laughs> but it, it's, it's like somebody transcribed the random thoughts that flit through his head at any one time <laughs> and then captured it. It's oh, crazy. Man. It's unfortunate. So far, what I've read, I've been like, oh, geez. Like, for example, there's the song Golden Earth Girl, which is a song from the 90s. And he's like, it's for Linda. I wrote it for Linda. And then he goes into this long segue about John and Yoko and about mm. how they wrote about nature. You know, each song kind of segues into the divorce because clearly he's got this massive bee in his bonnet about the breakup. And he says nothing <laughs> about Linda. Yeah, it, I think it happens to a lot of these people. There's nobody pushing back, like, especially with without Linda. I don't know what his relationship with his wife now is, if, how much of a partner she is in his, in his business or in his, you know, the way he yeah. presents himself. I don't know, but... 
yeah, somebody in the in the that situation has to push back. Otherwise, it's just whatever he wants to do happens. Well, that's the problem. And I think like when you you look at who he got to do this with, it's a poet. And it's like, why would he get a poet? Like he needs somebody who's a really good. Yes, an edit. Well, Paul McCartney always needs an editor and he needs somebody who's going to ask questions. So I think it's just unfortunate because this people will go back to this. And it's also there isn't going to be a great story about all these songs. You know, I mean, I write a lot of music and yeah. Sometimes shit just comes out and it whatever and sure you can sort of go oh that was what I was going through at that time or that may, that I get why there's a kernel of something there but yeah. they're not all going to be these great stories it's just and a lot of times they come out of nowhere and they yeah. they record them so quickly and then they're out yeah. and they're not in their lives for very long yeah yeah so. it's almost like us looking at the songs and for example, Paul McCartney writing Goodbye and then The End and, you know, The Long and Winding Road and Let It Be. Me looking at his year, I can kind of go, well, it's, well, yeah, it's like, so it looks like he was, yeah, it looks like he was dealing with some stuff. But, you know, you hear the chatter in the studio and Paul's like, it seems like we've got a theme. Like, it's just occurring to him that they've got a theme. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, like, so it's, right, like, right. it's like you said, he, it's just coming out of him. He he says that he doesn't like to think about it too much. He just likes to let stuff come out because I guess that's his creative process. So, you know, I get why not every song has a great story or that he really knows. Yeah, but, it's it's coming from, I mean, when you guys talked about all that Abbey Road stuff, it was sort of just like, oh my God, how, how did I miss, how did I miss all that? It's all there. It's all like, <laughs> it's the news of the day there in the songs in a lot of, a lot of places. Yeah. So, um, it must have just been. I, I'd be so curious about like, were they winking at each other? Did they were they aware that they're singing and writing about what's happening in their lives in that moment, or are they not really paying that close attention to it? So so curious. Yeah, that. I don't know. Like, there is chatter. Do you know all that? Like, how deeply have you gone into the "Let It Be" stuff? I've listened to a fair amount of it. Yeah, I've. I've okay. Uh, Fair, yeah, a lot of the I haven't I've heard the new stuff that just came out, and then but I've looked at all like the there's so much on YouTube, and and I've heard I've had some bootlegs and stuff, but I've heard some of the I was going to bring up what I think my favorite thing that Paul says just it's it's an offhand thing, and I was and I was I think a couple of years ago I just got into a sort of YouTube rabbit hole of mm-hmm. of the whatever that's called the the Nagra. You know, the yeah, 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 yeah. Tapes, yeah. Um, and uh, Paul's talking to the director. Um, what's his name? Blank Lindsay name. Michael Lin- Hogg. Michael Michael Lindsay Hogg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have to think that Spinal Tap grabbed that name for, <laughs> for one sure. of their characters. <laughs> but um, uh, but an American, strangely, right? Mm-hmm. He is the most British name I've ever heard. Michael Lindsay Hogg. It's true. It seems upper class British. He actually has some kind of, you know, his background. Uh, I knew he had directed some TV and and he had done some stuff with the Beatles. He had done like, did he do Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane or no? Uh, I don't think he did that one, but he did like Paperback Writer and he did Hey Jude. His mother is British. She is um, Geraldine Fitzgerald, but he is supposedly, potentially the illegitimate child of Orson Welles. Oh. 
Well, that's why he's such a great director that let it be exactly. Best. <laughs> um, well, no, and by the way, Lin- Michael Lindsay Hogg, there's a guy that could talk back to the Beatles a little bit. Like he could yeah. push them a little bit, and he yeah. he would he would get into it with them, not in a, in a negative way, but he wasn't afraid to speak his mind. And that must have been an uncomfortable place to be. But I mean, it seems like they were close enough where he felt comfortable to do that. But at some point, Paul is talking about you know it's it's so. I'm sorry, this is kind of going everywhere, but it's so, um, so uncomfortable. And I feel so bad for kind of all of them because they are becoming so self-aware of the situation yeah. they're in. And even John, who it's very confusing because we know that he's on heroin, but he does have lucidity throughout a lot. Of, and we'll see this in the Peter Jackson movie, I assume, because the trailer yeah. is full of John just it must have been all the footage of him smiling and talking yeah, yeah, yeah. is all crammed in there. But when he is there and present, he's trying to figure out how to get, sorry to say this, but how to get back to what it is that they do and being so self-aware of the situation they're in. And it's, it really feels like once you can see and this is in any creative situation or any creative partnership. I think once you can see what it is you're doing, it, it's kind of over. It's kind of like uh, the magic is over. Or something. There's sort of like, oh, now we now we can try to do this again, uh, and then it it you know it just starts diminishing. It starts becoming harder to get back to where when it was just working and you weren't even thinking about it. So it's very uncomfortable and very. Uh, I feel bad for them. To be openly, honestly, kind of trying to figure it out. At the same time, being very kind of closed and British and not really wanting to get into like a therapy session about it with <laughs> yeah, everybody, yeah. you know, there's yeah. still lots of guardedness. But at some point, uh, Paul says to uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg about this concept of coming in and just working. And if we show up, and I, he says, I wrote this down and I put it up like in my quote world. It's just work begets inspiration. And that blew my mind. Just the idea of like, just start doing something, right? Just whatever it is, it's going to suck. But through the working, inspiration comes to you. You're not going to just sit there. Sometimes it happens like you dream about the song yesterday or whatever. But most of the time, the good stuff comes from just starting and working and collaborating and and that just reminds me all the time to like if i'm not feeling you know energized to do something or i have some project that i'm putting off like just by starting it uh it it's you're going to get something out of that and now i've oh, started to so say like in meetings like I, i've just said this the other day in a writing meeting i was like well what would the bad idea be yeah. like let's start there what's the bad yeah. idea this obvious stupid idea yeah. well and then that just go then it, then you're off to the races but so that's that's great advice. It's a little harder to actually do when you're dealing with those guys with all the pressure and all the. Uh, but it did the, work. The personal though. stuff. It did work. Because that by record the end is it, not bad. Yeah. Like, no, I love that. I love that record. You know, I sat with it. We sat with it for the breakup series a lot, spending so much time with every song and listening to it a million times. And like, now I really love that album. Oh yeah, and I mean, they were happy at them, the end of it. You hear them sound, what's really cool is you hear them sound like they're a bad band until they're not, until they're, yeah. until, until they just 
lock in and learn the songs and play them right. Um, they're good song. Like I got a feeling and uh, I mean, I, 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 like I, dig I, a pony, yeah. I dig a ponies like they're, they're fun. I love that George has come in with this. Um, I've been listening to the band and you hear yeah. them. You hear that. I mean, I think, I don't think the band gets talked about enough as the, one of the big inspirations for them sitting around like that. Like yeah. they must've been so excited and jealous and interested in what Dylan was doing with the band. And for sure, I mean, I guess everybody was talking about music from big pink that year uh, or the year before, I guess in 68, but or 60, whenever that came out, 67, 68, but that they I know George, especially, but I'm sure the other guys too, were just like, that's cool. Let's get in a room and just play together. And we can kind of get back into our bluesy rootsy stuff. And, uh, yeah. and you know, and George, what? even is- George says it, he says like when he's talking about all things must pass, like it's kind of a bandy thing. It's a band, you know, and he's, and he's right. <laughs> it has that, it has that little, he wants to put in that little edge to it. Um, a little on the one kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I, I think, but there, but it's, but it had the moment had passed or something. It was just, it wasn't for them to be doing that or something, you know I mean? I don't, I don't know. They did make great. They did. It it did work. I, it did work, but, um, I just think when it's, when it's, when it felt, it felt a little strained and a little, um, the, the too much, it wasn't, probably wasn't as relaxed and, and chill as whatever the band was doing in Woodstock. Right, right. Well, first of all, like the Beatles had a million times more pressure on them, you know? And, and like you said, they had just finished the White Album. This is where a manager might have been helpful, is to oh, just yeah. be like, Paul, yeah, I know you want to get going, but everybody needs four months off. You're going into the studio and nobody has any songs. And you, like, <laughs> it was an insane challenge that they set for themselves. They have no songs. They're going to perform in three weeks. I mean, no wonder they're all stressed and unhappy. I mean, I can't even imagine the pressure, you know? And the fact that they deliver it is incredible. Like they write and record the songs in a matter of the month, right? It's insane. Yeah. And then they don't stop. After that, they go right no. into the road. It's right true. Right into the Spring into summer. And then John, at the end of it, after they perform, he's like, he's all into performing. He said that he wanted to go on the road, you know. So this is where challenging everything kind of comes in that I personally don't think they had lost the magic. I think they just needed some space. I think, you know, one of them is on heroin and bringing his girlfriend to work every day. That just kind of threw everything. They've got camera crews around them. They can't have proper conversations. I mean, there's a lot of dynamics there. And then it's crazy that just to, I'm just thinking of this now, but imagine the Yoko element really shows up hardcore in the white album, right? Like yeah, it, yeah. that's when she's kind of there and like, okay, this is a brand new dynamic for all of us. Yep. This is a brand new, uh, strange artist who John <laughs> is now completely obsessed with. Will, and has changed the entire dynamic of the recording process and the band itself. Um, what's the next move we should do? Let's do a documentary of us <laughs> making our next album, right? Like, exactly. of course that's going to blow up in their faces. Right? <laughs> that is probably the worst thing. Exactly. Yeah. When it, and they all said that about, it's not like, it's not like they didn't know it. They all recall the white album being horrible and yeah. being, you know, full of tension 
And so that was their solution is to record it next time they do it. Oh my God. Yeah, that they should have, have known. The, yeah. They should have yeah. gone off to, they should have, if they wanted to, they should have gone to Woodstock or up into Paul's farm or something with nobody around and like yeah. do, do, do that thing they did when they went and did all the demo, the Escher demos or something, yeah. you know? But yeah. no, they they made the exactly the wrong move, and I mean it, it worked out for the record, but it probably sped up the demise. Uh, you know, it, it poured salt on all kinds of wounds there, um, that we get to see in real time happen. But yeah, well, I wonder if that's the problem with that film is that it kind of put an image in everybody's mind that things were really bad. Like if that movie hadn't existed, and we hadn't seen it after they yeah. had broken up. Well, that's would yeah. that period be remembered so badly? You know, I mean, some people do say they say, well, if you would have been filming any of their albums, maybe after their second album or something, you would have definitely been able to capture fights between the band. Yeah. You know, you you would have gotten argued. There's this, the Paul walking out during a, a revolver session, right? Yeah, of course, of course, these people are going. They're human beings. It happens to everybody. There's going to be flare-ups. There's going to be bad days. Um, so. You know, yeah. If 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 they if they were filmed the way they were filmed for Let It Be, all the other albums, you could cut a movie about how, what a what a drag Sergeant Pepper's was. <laughs> right. Well, it right? would just basically be Paul and John Ringo, in the studio. Ringo yeah. playing Ringo playing chess, right? <laughs> and George not there. Exactly. Yeah. Well, um, what was that? Did you hear that the other? It was like, it was somebody saying that there was an interview with Paul was saying that George wasn't there, but that's not really true, is it? Was I mean, there's lots of pictures of George being in the studio, but I, I think that that was Paul was fiddling with studio trickery so much and so into it. And but there's a lot of pictures of John and Paul together. And John says that Pepper was the peak for Lennon and McCartney. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I we'd have to look at it day by day. But George isn't very present on that album in terms of, you know, being enthusiastic. I mean, Paul does a couple of the solos right. um, on that Here's album. Here's a weird so, thing. Here's a weird thing about Let It Be that I mm-hmm. that you'd think out of out of uh, all those records they'd have found a Ringo song. Seriously, yeah, Isn't that's that true. Weird? There's no, there is no Ringo. This is yeah. a band. They're they're trying to get back to like that dynamic that everybody knows yeah, yeah, yeah. and the harmonies and like give Ringo a song. Seriously, that would make everybody happy if you give do an old timey cover. Like, why are they doing one after nine oh nine? Which, by the way, I don't, I don't know. I don't need that song. I don't I, need I, that. I, Nobody I needs that song. But give <laughs> him a Carl Perkins song or something fun to do. Rock around the clock. You know, I didn't think about that. <laughs> the fact that he doesn't have anything to do on that album, and I think it's because Lennon was kind of short on material right. and. You know, I, I think if Lennon would have had 20 songs and McCartney had 20 songs, then they can be just generous. I don't know. That's, you know that's my a other, good point, though. You know, my other little pet peeve with the Beatles when it comes to Ringo is on uh, Don't Pass Me By, okay? Mm-hmm. Why why couldn't they sing with him? Why couldn't they do that sort of the harmonies they do with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Act Naturally or something? Whenever I hear it, once I realize that there, there could have been a nice, even Paul just singing... A, a little third above him on yeah, the yeah, Don't yeah, Pass yeah. Me By chorus. Yeah. Whenever I, I, once I realize that it's not there, whenever I hear that song, it kind of bums me out. It's kind of, I feel lone. It's like a lonely feeling. Like, poor Ringo. <laughs> like, come on, he's out there. He needs, he needs you guys. Give him Seriously. A, give him, Seriously. It's a he does. Song. It's like, 
it's such a classic country song that could really benefit. Don't pass me by. Don't make me cry. Don't, you know, like, come on. For sure. Guys. It's true. It's kind of they're like, oh, let's go take a coffee break. It's a Ringo yeah, song. He's you doing know? the vocals. Yeah. <laughs> and poor old Ringo, you're right. Like, how bold was he to be like, I've got a song. You know? Yeah, we'll sing with you, Ring. The- yeah. I wanted to ask you, going back to the point that you made before about you'd been a, a more of a John guy mm-hmm. um, and listening to the breakup series, did that make you any less of a John guy uh, or more of a Paul guy or less of a Paul guy? I mean, our attention really wasn't to uh, elevate one over the other. It was just to try and see things from a different perspective, you know, to um, to explore both of them from a different point of view. So just going back to your comment about John right at the beginning. I think uh, he's still incredibly uh, fascinating and, uh, you know, I might might prefer his music in the Beatles period. Uh, I guess less of like a, uh, I mean, I, I think when you start... Uh, looking into the way he treated people, you know, it, it, it's just a, it's not, not a perfect person. Nobody is, but he, he was, must've been very, just very hard guy to be around for a lot of people. But then you hear other stories that, that kind of contradict that. And so, you know, I think he's probably undiagnosed with several, you know, uh, <laughs> sure. psychological issues that, yeah. that a lot of people had to deal with. Um, and of course, so much of we get like we do with Paul or anybody else is what they put out and what they present to us. Um, and it's just like, I don't know, when I was watching, which I hadn't seen until a couple, maybe last year was the the hour long uh, bed, bed in film that mm-hmm. is great. And uh, I didn't know that that existed and it suddenly showed up on YouTube uh, and, you know, he's funny and engaging and you know, he gets into some, into some heated arguments, but mm-hmm. also he's very, seems happy. But then you're also kind of trying to reconcile what we also know is that he's like on heroin or he's weaning off heroin or, you know, and you're, there's just, there's just so much to, to take in there. Um, but it did, it, it did, uh, ra- raise the value of Paul, uh, and as, um, you know, the, the you know the guy <laughs> the guy who um gets gets it done and yeah um i always think like when the white album reissue remaster came out and i did another deep listen into that and talked about it with all my friends and stuff yeah yeah, yeah. the yeah. friends that want to talk about that um <laughs> they're the special friend i love my friends that want to yeah. talk about it <laughs> and i i i the the thing i got from that was like all right i don't think paul's songs on the white album are the best um they're not like I think it's the highest, highest percentage of sort of novelty songs coming yeah. out of like out of the band. I mean, he's always the guy that's going to get you the novelty song. Yeah. But um, or or sort of like the pastiche or like the song that kind of sounds like something else. 
it's not a lot of like, you know, depth there, but you know, there is, but, um, but he's on everybody else's. So he's making everybody else's songs cook. Like he's just yep. killing it uh, on uh, happiness is a warm gun. And on uh, while my guitar gently weeps on everything. Yeah. He's he really just like, yeah. he is there for the guys and he's making yeah. their songs work. Nobody else is. They're not. You well, know? That, that's what we complained about that in one episode about like Maxwell Silverhammer. Like if you didn't like it, guys, why didn't Paul? Because Paul made all of your songs way better. I feel like he shows up and makes all of their songs, you know, from Ace to like Supernova songs. Totally. You know, they just yeah, come and, together doesn't work unless it's got the bass line and the and you know like this the thing that he's bringing to that song is it's all about Paul and that song. Well, the interesting thing about Paul on on the White Album is you know. Um, I probably prefer John's songs on the White Album, but there's some songs I love. I will. I love, you know, Blackbird. I love yeah, yeah. Uh, Helter Skelter. Oh, he's, and, got, he's got major songs on the White yeah, Album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. But he's also got Hey Jude. And that is <laughs> that is his major song of the summer, right, you know? Right, But But I think that that is something that is not, um, Paul isn't recognized enough for how much he helps everybody else's songs you know, and how invested he is in everyone's, even George has to concede that, that he, it, you know, it's really hard to get Paul to focus on one of his songs, but when he does, it's very useful. Um, when, when do you think that, that really started? Is there a good, do you guys have sort of a, a point in time when, when that's the role he took? I mean, is it once they were in the studio? Uh, it couldn't have been right away because he couldn't have just naturally been you know, it, it must have been a couple albums in or something that he starts feeling comfortable enough to to kind of tell people what to do. You mean when he takes more of a producer role? or Yeah. Yeah. Take, yeah. Well, I, I do know that some of the engineers said that he was right away, right from the start, he was learning from George Martin. He just was really interested in it. In terms of him helping out with songs, you know, Paul's always jumping, even in Hamburg, he's jumping off the piano to the bass to the, you know, guitar. So I, I don't know, but that's a good question. Like when did he really become the the secret sauce on a lot of the songs? You know, I don't know. Yeah, and, when does, and when does he assert himself? I think it's pretty, it's probably pretty early that he asserts himself with John. And I think of John has got to be, you know, I, there's people in my life and there's people, uh, I, I've decided or I've kind of recognized that there are people that are kind of mood setters, right? Mm -hmm, there are people mm -hmm. that, oh, when that, per when that person is in a bad mood, it affects yeah. everybody else, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. I, and I, and, or if they're in a good mood, they're going to lead the charge. They're going yeah, to like yeah. set the mood. I don't have, even have to explain it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. It's, a, it's a thing that some people have. And I, I think John is like the king of that, right? He's got to be the big, he's the, the energy of the room is, is dependent on where he's at. And, uh, and, you know, I, Paul is fascinating to me is he seems gotta be one of the only people in the planet who intimidated John in some kind of way. Right. Yeah, kind of sure. John was, was kind of intimidated by his talent. And I think Paul was comfortable knowing that that dynamic existed that John is king shit uh, everywhere he goes, but Paul is right there with him. And John respected the shit out of Paul and was probably 
you know, a little in, well, intimidated or, or scared of him in a way um, that gave Paul a lot of power in that relationship. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably true. It, it's it's interesting the, the way that guys see this a little bit differently because, you know, I, you've heard the breakup series. Yeah. We see John as being so soft, you know, and, and I agree with you when I watch videos of John, he is so cool. And that is, and I love that about him. Like John's the coolest person on earth and he's hilarious yeah. and he's so charismatic. So I'm not saying that doesn't exist. And I think that mesmerizes everybody, including Paul. But I also think there's so much evidence that he was set so soft and so sweet, could be so sweet as well. And right. so, you know, this sort of like alpha dog, I, I, I don't know. But here's the thing is, I think that Paul knew how much power he had over John right from the start. And so when you know you have that, that's just a different dynamic too, you know? Yeah, I think there are, I think, I mean, and this applies not just to, I think these are power dynamics that exist in relationships. It is, um, yeah. And, and it is, there are people where you know that you can have some influence over them, how they feel. Uh, and then there's other people that where you don't, or you don't care. Um, and I think both of those guys must have been very aware that um like i think there's that great story that jo i think paul says about john about when they're getting into some heated argument and john pulls his glasses down and says you know it's just me right like yeah yeah, <laughs> I yeah, love yeah, that. yeah. that's really through all the shit there's still like these two people that were hanging out when they were 17 and 15 yeah. years old yeah um i just i think for me it, it raises my uh opinion of Paul or whatever that that he could go to nose to nose with John you know and that he he could he was he had that um you know power not i mean power is just a strong word it's not doesn't always apply here but i mean did you did you hear that thing that Dylan there was this interview that Dylan did i think it was with Jan Werner and it was maybe about 10 years ago yep yep you know what i'm going to yeah, say it's so good he goes nobody's better than Paul McCartney. He's like, that. that's one of the few people that intimidate. He intimidates me how good he yeah. is. He can do anything. And that's Bob Dylan saying that. Yeah. You know, in Bob Dylan in his 70s when he's, I think, much more open and, and oh, for sure. a, li a little more like he's oh, not trying sure. to be Mr. Cagey guy. Trying to yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, Lennon to this day, I mean, it's hard to find a better singer than Lennon was or, or, or that the McCartney mm -hmm. was and still is. I mean, I'm in awe of McCartney. He's about the only one that I am in awe of, but I'm in awe of him. Um, I mean, he, he can do it all. And um, um, and, he, and he's never let up, you know. Um, uh, he, he's got the gift for melody. He's got the rhythm. He can play any instrument. Uh, he can scream and shout as, as good as anybody, and he can sing a ballad as good as anybody, you know. So... Um, and then his melodies are, are you know, effortless. That's what you have to be in awe. He's just, he's just, he's just all, he's in, I'm in awe of him. He was just because he's just so damn effortless. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just wish he'd quit, you know. He's like, <laughs> uh, it just, everything, anything that comes out of his mouth is, is just uh, framed in a melody, you know. That was amazing. And actually, Paul Simon came out and said something 
well, somebody was tweeting about it recently anyways, you know, putting Paul at sort of the top tier of songwriters. Um, but yeah, that was, oh, you said Paul that, Simon. I thought you said, um, Paul's son. I said, oh, no, James, no, no. James McCartney had something nice to say about Paul. <laughs> yeah, James, you rock it, man. Rock it. I know you will. That's pretty good, actually. That's, that's my favorite. That's my favorite cringe uh, clip. I think of all time is <laughs> is the the clip of Paul call, uh, calling into the Australian show with James McCartney. <laughs> you know what? You know that no, one. No, I don't know that one. Oh no! This is <laughs> no, going to break your heart. Poor James McCartney is playing <laughs> oh, no. on some morning talk show, and he's playing yeah. his like you know it's it's like Radiohead kind of sounding rock music. Like, it's not, I don't think it's the greatest thing, but whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What do I know? Yeah. And they go, we've got, a, and the, the the interviewer comes over and says, we've got a very special message from a very, uh, somebody, you know, somebody you know very well. Oh, no. And you just see him go like, oh. And it's Paul backstage. <laughs> and they took a, you know, they went to send a video crew over to his tour or whatever. And, yeah. and Paul looks in the camera and goes, hey, Jamesy, uh, rocket man, I know you will. <laughs> And he goes, yeah, yeah, man. And he kiss. He does this kiss off thing. His, oh no, I'm just to, dying just here. Have to watch. It is the it's it's the most uncomfortable thing. He goes, yeah, and then he goes do do do, and he does a little guitar thing, and, oh, it's, no. and then it goes back to James in the studio, <laughs> and he just look. He already looks like he's a bit of a wet blanket, you know. Yeah, he's yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. He's just like, yeah. oh cool. He says, oh cool. <laughs> it's like, Oh, what oh my are you yeah, what are you going to do? There is a there is a also a video of Stella getting an award for being designer of the year, and it's uh -huh. by Bowie. And then all of a sudden, it's like her dad comes on, like Paul comes oh. on to give it to her, and she looks a bit mortified too. Like, yeah. you, please, like I'm trying to distance myself yeah. so that I get some kind of reputation. I know. And like Paul's so proud, you know, he's so proud and is so wants to give it to her, but it's like, no, Paul, just just let them be just let just back off for now you no, know he loves it i mean he's a true entertainer i mean i think the best the best um film on paul i think i've ever i, I would say the most transparent the most sort of like interesting look into who he really is is the uh the mazel's brothers um 911 documentary oh interesting yeah have you seen that yes it, it didn't get distributed the right way or something, but it's, it's basically following him around New York yep. right after 9-11 yep. doing, getting mm -hmm. ready to do that show. Yeah. And you get to see him just, I mean, it's the Maisel. So they're, they're, they're good at this. They keep back and they are, you know, they know how to make a documentary. So they get him just to, as he is, and to see him talking to like Pete Townsend and Elton John and all those people backstage, uh, that's such a great treat. And he, you know, he just does seem very, very, um, you know, nice and normal and relaxed, but also very excited to be a performer. Very natural for him to put on a show, you know, yeah. that's who he is. That's who he's, it's the family he grew up in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did an interview with uh, um, a couple of guys uh, a while ago on Paul McCartney's creative practice. Um, uh, it was Philip McIntyre and Paul Thompson. And Paul Thompson's from around um, Liverpool. And he was talking about the fact that Paul exhibits some of the traits of being from a working class Liverpudlian family where it's like reading a room is considered to be very nice, like socially. So performing is like you're doing something nice for people uh -huh. um, in a way that 
he said like a more upper class would think that that was cheesy or not cool. Whereas he said that this would be seen as a good thing. Like you're putting people at ease and, uh, and you see him do that. Like sometimes it's like, Oh, Paul, could you just be a little cooler? But I thought that that was an interesting insight. I always think it's interesting that we don't think, I don't think as much of, I mean, maybe, maybe this is an obvious thing, but for the Beatles, for those guys from, to come from Liverpool and to come down and and become part of the London scene um, must have been its own kind of weird stress and anxiety because, you know, they're hanging around with the London kids, yeah. the London, the kinks or yeah, the yeah, stones yeah, for sure. or those, the yeah. who, they're, those guys are London. They're, those guys are from the big city. And, oh yeah. And, and all that, those levels of snobbery. Oh my yeah, God, it's the, true. Yeah. The class levels. And I mean, maybe just the fact that they were so big and so just loved, just erased all that stuff and people just treated them as equals. But I wonder I if so. there was a little bit of sort of like, but you're from Liverpool. You know, <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> you know, that's where, the, that's where the country folk are from or some kind of attitude about it. Well, I, I think I think you're right. Like if they hadn't been so incredibly powerful, I think they would have had to have dealt with that a lot more. But when I interviewed uh, Chris Salovich, he also said that at that time it was cool to be from Northern England. Like that's Ah, where there was a certain kind of coolness from that, but I'm sure they still felt it. You know, there was still layers and layers of snobbery in London. I mean, Paul probably had an easier entree into London because he was living with the Ashers. But when you look at the other three, they didn't even try. They didn't even try to integrate into, you know, kind of the London scene. I don't know if it was you that brought this up or whoever brought this up, but the maybe we were just, I was just talking with friends, but I love this idea that within a year or so of of hitting it big, those other three are out into the country (laughs) in this big mansion, getting married, buying cars, like checked out of, of like their, in their, in their mid twenties. Yeah. They're like middle-aged men, you know, know. (laughs) like living next to bankers and, and like very strange. I mean, they probably didn't know what the hell they were doing. They were probably just like, that's what you saw on TV or that's what you saw in the movies. When you hit it big, you get a mansion yeah. and these, this is where the mansions are. Yeah. Um, and that must've been a, just a, like such a confusing thing to go through. I mean, they were not home a lot, probably they were, this is the touring period and uh, they're constantly being, you know, asked to do things, but still just that I, that so it's kind of lame in one way to think about it. Just like, where did you move? You moved to Weybridge or whatever it is. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But have you read the um, Maureen Cleave articles from 1966? Oh, like how does a beetle live? Yeah, I think uh, I was, maybe that was, was that your show? So, uh, yeah, it was my show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I talked about it a little bit, but if you haven't read them, yeah. those are the most fascinating profiles because she spends time and she's, she's a really good observer of them. And it's like, John just has this house where John just wants to play, you know, he's got his gorilla suits and he's buying tons of chocolate and, and he doesn't know what to do with his money and except for he wants to play and, you know, they're kind of out there. Be, be with the guys it, totally yeah. totally and he's really into like having money and power and he's really open about that i mean i actually much prefer that john because he makes fun well he does make fun of himself throughout his life which i like but he he just seems like a kid 
Right. You know, and, and he gets a little self-serious with with Yoko, I find. Although when he's talking to the reporters and yeah, he can be fun, but right. sometimes with that, it just gets a little much for me. I wonder like with the Yoko, like, did she like, did she think he was funny? You know, I think she uh, kind of did, but I don't know if she got it all the time. Like, like it must, that must've, I, I think it was fascinating about your chat about uh, in the breakup series about what that relationship was. Cause it's, it was so non- sexual in a lot of ways yeah yeah it was brotherly sisterly it was kind of an artsy project kind of thing um but was there like i mean there's there's certainly a lot of um film of her kind of laughing at him but he was always trying to to be funny i don't think it was always successful but (laughs) um you know he's always not kind of that hammy kind of like well that's it folks you know he's like doing that kind of shtick yeah. And like, did that work on her? What, but did they have their own sense of humor that we didn't see? I'm just curious. Well, she's got that cute little laugh. You know, I think she found him funny. Um, Ray Connolly said that they, they weren't that serious in real life a lot of the time. Uh, right. I can imagine her getting, a, getting a bit over John at some point. Um, you know, I can see her loving that at first, but. Uh, well, that's what I was saying earlier about him being so. In the good and the bad, just being a lot to be around and everybody yeah. probably needing a break from that in some different ways. Like, well, her I, I too. Think, well, yes, <laughs> yes, for sure. But like, I was thinking of um, in the Let It Be footage, like, whenever the focus is off of him, yeah, and he's and like, if George is working on a song. Yeah. He's like, you can hear him noodling away and doing shtick and making voices. Yeah, 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 and yeah. I, if I'm George, I'm just like, dude, can I just, can you chill for a minute so we can work on this? Or like, All right. like you got so much, so much like electricity going on and it's all the, and, and he's trying to, I feel like there's moments there where he's trying to, him and Paul are kind of getting along in the Let It Be movie. Oh yeah. It feels like, right. They're like, they're cracking each other up and- when Paul and John get into like a shtick, like a comedy yep. thing, yep. everybody's gone. Everyone's a million miles away and they're in their own little play, oh, yeah. right? Well, hey, yeah. well, here was up. Like it's all on, um, uh, you know, my name like that. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Just, like you guys are killing each other. It's not that funny to anybody else, you know? but you guys seem <laughs> like you're so in true. heaven right now. But that's the interesting thing. The first few times I looked at all the footage from Let It Be, I was kind of like, oh yeah, it's true. John was really checked out. I kind of saw all the things that I bought into. And maybe the third time I was just like, wait, everything has changed now and I can't yeah. unsee it anymore. How much these two are connected and talking to each other. And, and you know, Giles Martin said that recently. He was interviewed and he, he made the point that he thought that John and Paul spent a lot of ta- time trying to reconnect in that period. And I, I wouldn't, you know, me and the, the breakup series, I, I think that they are not necessarily reconnecting. I think they're trying to figure out how they have a new level of relationship with Yoko there and with Linda there and you know, there, you know, right. and well, it's like I said earlier, there's a self-consciousness about it. There's an awareness yeah. that something has changed that yeah. we just had a bad year. Yeah. Um, and what if we turned it on to turned it up a notch about like what we do together, like make it a little more, uh, make it more of an effort to, and that's why I say it kind of, that's, that, that's when it becomes hard because when you become self-aware of what your relationship is about, 
yeah there can be kind of no turning back can just it's got whatever you know ether magic was there is kind of hard to i mean it's, it's not that it's it's just different then it just has well, become a different thing yeah but you know what it comes back i mean john and paul tried to reconnect throughout the 70s you know they had so many flirtations about getting back together that i i don't think it was gone i just think that was a bad period you know i, I guess i don't think it was i don't i i take it back i don't think it's gone i just think it has it changed and and that's what happens to relationships relationships change they get more there's more history that things are built on and i you know i'm a person that's like like I have a hard time with old friends that don't want to, that, you know, if I, somebody from high school or something calls me and they're like, Hey, remember that time? I'm like, I don't want to go through that. Like I've, uh, you know what I mean? Like people that want to just kind of like, and that's what I feel like sometimes in that, in that, let it be in the get back sessions. There's a little bit of remember back in the day when we were in the cavern and we're doing, you know, like kind of nostalgia trip that, I think is an, an, an effort by them to find a new, you know, rekindle their relationship, but you're right. I mean, it would, it certainly had John Lennon not been killed, certainly would have, the, the ice would have thawed to the degree with that they would have done something together. You know, there would have been no doubt something, don't you think? I do. And I mean, there was, there was a lot of motion around 80. It's hard to track down exactly what happened. Believe me, I've tried. Oh, I see. Uh, but, you know, John had set up some legal stuff to suggest that the Beatles could get back together. And, you know, there's a lot of evidence that shows that they were thinking about getting back together at that time, at least to try and write together, Lennon McCartney. I mean, what if John, like, what, we could play what if for whatever mm-hmm. reason, because mm-hmm. This is, yeah. so, you know, this is, this but is like, the fun. Yeah. I caught like a BBC 1983, uh, a, a conversation with John and Paul film, yeah. you know, like an hour where the two of them laugh, tell stories, yeah. play a little music together and no Beatles reunion talk. I mean, yeah. I mean, they could talk about it, but no, it's not a Beatles reunion. Um, but just, just like just a little, a bite of that, you know, like just a, let's try this. Let's try something without a lot of, uh, stakes, you know, yeah, it's yeah. Just like, let's just, uh, let's talk about the old days for an hour and film it and maybe it'll be cool. Um, yeah. Well, I'm sure that would have happened. I mean, I think that they were really sort of shouting out to each other or flirting through music at that time, you know, coming up and starting over both have references. And so, you know, they definitely were coming closer to working together and and I think they both wanted it. So I think it would have happened. And they were both really great at that time too. They both looked good, you know, they both. Oh yeah. Yeah. I love, I love McCartney too. I love some of John's songs from double fantasy. So yeah. I mean, the, the other question is, did they need each other at that anymore? You know, like what would that relationship have? What, what, what would that creative relationship have been? Like, do it is, can you go, can you truly go back? Can you make, would it end up just feeling like a retro thing? Like free as a bird does. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, like maybe it, it belongs in the past the way it is in the, in the, and that was that, I don't know. It would be, it would seem like it would be very, the pressure would be there to figure out like, well, what is this now? Why are we writing together? We wrote together because we didn't know anybody else and we didn't 
and we worked together well for a while. And then yeah. we didn't. And then we figured out a new way, which was basically, I'm going to bring in a song that's pretty much done. And you're going to help me kind of fin- like polish this and make it really work. Mm-hmm. That really was kind of their, mo- like the half of their writing partnership, you know, like the, the length of their writing partnership, like half the time was basically not a partnership, right? So would it have been like maybe Paul produces John's album and plays on it? Like, could it have been that loose? You know, that would have been cool. Well, that's Um, the thing. But that's the thing is that like a come together had an extra magic because Paul got John. Whether he wrote the song or not, he was able to understand what John needed and bring it to the song. So I I, I would argue, I, I don't see the songwriting partnership quite like that. Like I, cause you know, you see them even, they, they write Sergeant Pepper a lot yeah. together. A lot of the, those songs are written together. They're spending hours in Rishikesh going off and writing together apparently uh, for the white album. And then they do write together occasionally for let it be. And you know, there's um, sun King and uh, give me some truth. And they yeah. are still sort of throwing some lyrics and it's not think, quite what it was, but I mean, I think, yeah, you see it a little bit and you see it in that trailer. They show the clip of, of John, of, of George asking for help with come together. And you know, that, that line some, of something. Yeah. 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 Oh, so, sorry. Something. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, you know, he's, he's asking for help for lyrics. Yeah. And I think sure that that could naturally happen, but I think, you know, the days of like them sitting in front of each other with guitars, and playing until something comes might not, that might just be gone. It's like come in with, with, with something to, yeah. to work off of. And I'm going to suggest a baseline. I'm going to suggest a harmony. I'm going to help you with the bridge. Like that would have been great, but you know, I don't know. It might've been too much pressure for them to sit down in front of each other with two guitars and say, let's write an album together. You know? Yeah. Well, I think what they were doing from what, and, and I can't remember the moment, but, um, I think that they were compiling songs or something, which would make sense. You know, like John had those three songs put aside that apparently were written for Paul. And so if he was starting to put together some songs that this is for us, for Paul to help me finish or something like that. But even that itself is like, even when you've got, you know, I'm sure, you know, this has certainly been my experience is that I'll write something that's pretty, I think is pretty good. And then I'll work with somebody that, you know, I, I work really well with, and I'm always shocked at how much better it it gets. Oh yeah. I mean, we were going to, we talked offline about talking about just collaborations in general and what that, how that applies to the way we think about the Beatles. And yeah, um, I'm a hundred percent a collaborator and not a single uh, you know, a loner. I'm a guy that needs another a sounding board. I need, right. and, and I don't know, I don't exactly know why that is or what that is. It's a, it's a, because I think the core of creation is it's a recreational activity. It's a, it's a, it's a fun play. thing to do. Play. Yeah. It's play. Yeah. And, and you want to, if you're with a person and I've had a few people in my life that I'm very comfortable with, that we get along well, we think each other, uh, we think we each think each other is, is funny. In my case, I do comedy. So it's mostly comedy. Music is harder to write for me personally, right. Harder to write with another person because it's kind of a solitary thing to start doing. Yes. Um, 
you know, to sit there and play piano or guitar and, and stuff comes out of you. It's a little more vulnerable, but if I'm sitting in a room with Eric or Greg or somebody that I work with a lot, um, stuff just comes out. So, and it's mostly, it starts with, I want to entertain you. I want to, <laughs> yeah, I want to, yeah, I want to yeah. well, make, I think they did that a lot too. Yeah, like you said, I, we've always said, I mean, Eric and I have always said like, we're doing this for us. Like, yeah. it's nice that you guys enjoy it, <laughs> but I'm doing this for you and he's doing it for me. We're turning each other on. And that is, that's most of it. And then some, then we're writing it down so that we can actually, you know, make it for the public. But, um, if, well, John says that. John says that in 74, 75. He's like, yeah, I wouldn't mind getting back together. And, and you know, if we turned each other on musically, then, you know, maybe yeah. we would do more, you know? So yeah. that, it's the same thing. If, if that fun is still there, then cool. Exactly. And, some, and sometimes it's not. And I mean, you know, I always think, and it, it's, you always get, I always get into it's dangerous to kind of go this way because people laugh at you. But I do think of my collaborations always in, in the turn in like the John Paul archetype way of thinking, you know, like who's the John and who's the Paul. And that's, and I think largely that uh, those archetypes are created um, through the myth of the Beatles yeah, story being told, you know, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so but what's been great is to like through your, through this podcast and other people's research and the, the writing that's, that's going on about this continues to go on about this band mm -hmm. is you, I can see myself as a Paul guy one day and a John guy the next day. And because there was so, it was so complicated, that relationship was so complicated. So if I would say like, Oh, I'm the Paul in this relationship, what, it, what would that mean a few years yeah. ago? I think it would mean like, well, I would, I'm the guy that that's easier to get along with. Right. You know, maybe that, that, at that period, um, I'm a little bit more of the, uh, ambassador to other people, you know, like I'm a little more, I'm the guy you'd want to, I could talk more about the stuff with the crew or something. Or, yeah. And, and that might just be at a certain period of time or, Maybe I'm like, no, but I'm actually like the John guy because I'm the guy with like the spark of uh, the idea. Like I'm like the idea guy who can bring in this wild thing or so it's just like, I'm not, we're, I'm not comparing myself to him as a person or them as a thing <laughs> or whatever. It's something I said and I, you know, <laughs> I'm not comparing myself, um, but it does help or it, I don't know if it helps, but it, it's a way for me always to process my relationships with my collaborators through, Interesting. The, through the way I, I saw how those kind of people worked. Yeah, I, I can understand how like in the archetypal view of Lennon McCartney, you could kind of you could kind of put yourself in one role or the other, but that's the problem is the more and more I dig into their relationship, the more it's confusing. Like they, they constantly flip on each other, even like, you know what you said that John's probably the mood setter, but I think Paul brings the energy to like, I think that Paul really breathes life into John actually. And John performs for Paul a lot too. Right. And so, um, you know, and this idea that Paul's, I personally think Paul's a lot tougher then, you know, and that, that's what a lot of people say, that he's very nice, very polite and nice and charming on the outside, but extremely tough underneath. And once you get through with John, he may be the nicer, softer person on a day-to-day -day basis, you know? Um, 
And so that's why I get confused about which one's which at this point. Yeah. I mean, you look at the, the you look at Paul, uh, you know, mother dying, um, you know, I think Stu Sutcliffe dying is a big deal. I think Brian Epstein dying is a big deal. John Lennon dying, Linda dying, George oh. Harrison dying. Oh, I know. These are all, I mean, how many close people in your life? I don't know you. I haven't had anywhere near that amount of people die in my adult life, like that mm. I know that well. Like I've had grandparents die, I've had mm-hmm. friends die. Yeah, me um, too. These yeah. are all, these are all like, like very close, important people for this person. <laughs> I know. know. Paul has had a tough life, actually. You know, for all of his fame, it's kind of like, wow, that's a lot. I I would think so. I mean, it is life and people get through with it, you know, and they are able to deal with it. It's, I mean, there must be a little bit of him that just says, why not me? Like, well, how am I, how have I missed the... the, Well, he did say that after, he did say that after Linda died, apparently. Oh, really? He was like, why am I still here? I mean, John dying and then Linda dying. It's just like, boom, boom. Like, wow. Oh, I know. So we feel for him and, uh, and... I don't know. Uh, but yeah, when you look about, look at like how, how, uh, type a he was and how strong he was in their heyday making kind of pushing everybody to, to work, I could see how he was kind of a pain in the ass too. (laughs) I do too. I do too. And I think, I, I think that if we had had like we have the video of Let It Be. I kind of wish we had film of Revolver or Rubber Soul because Let It Be is such a weird dynamic. You can tell Paula's bending over backwards to accommodate everyone. And yeah. I think he would have been just a lot cooler and more confident in those other albums. And I think John would have been a lot more receptive, even though there is a lot of that still under the surface in Let It Be. You've got, you've got some odd dynamics. Michael Lindsay Hogg said that. He said that everybody was a bit weird at that time because the <laughs> dynamics were weird, you know? Yeah. And so, um, I mean, yeah. you, you already had like, I mean, you had Ringo quit the year before, right? For I think whatever. those are strikes personally. I mean, I personally think they take all of those too, too seriously. Like somebody walking out being like, yeah, I object. And then coming back three days later is not exactly what I would consider a serious right. quitting. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I mean, I guess the point is like, there was, there were signs that like there was shake there, you know, there was like, uh, discord. You know, yeah, un- yeah, discord. There was unrest yeah. and, uh, I, I, it's just really one would be interesting to figure out at the core, what was Paul, what was, was he just a sort of a shark that needed to eat, you know, uh, needed to swim to eat or whatever that expression is like, what was motivating him to, to get everybody there in January? Like, was it some money? Is it uh, some kind of obligation to well, they, the did, they did actually the have, yeah, they did actually have an obligation to make a film. They did have to deliver another film. So there, there was a legal obligation, but that didn't mean that they needed to be in the studio on January 3rd, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and, and, and setting themselves up for this crazy deliverable, like what three weeks and you're going to write a full album. I mean, that sounds awful. Um, yeah, yeah, but that's, an, that's an interesting question, whether he was driven by, 
Well, I he's think the he adult. Was just... I mean, he's the adult in that relationship in a lot of ways, especially at that period of time when everything is so hippy dippy and like how somebody's got to go listen boys we got to go we there's nobody else he's very aware that there's nobody else he's very aware that there's that he's kind of the de facto manager i guess um yeah that's a pity i think i think um and he doesn't really love that role when you hear him talking about it i i think it's unfortunate that they didn't have a manager it put paul in an in an awkward position like john who doesn't want done paul that? like who could have who could have been that is there a person out there that was obvious that i mean i don't know no there's not apparently they were trying they were trying to get you know that was just the date like there wasn't that many managers managers. yeah like professional managers at that time you know this is i know you kind of i the the one one of the things that 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 really struck me with the book that i know you have issues with but um (laughs) the one thing that jumped out at me was Almost, and actually, I don't think it was that book. <laughs> actually, I take it back. It's another book. Oh, good, good. It's it another, another book. book that you don't that you have an issue with, but um, <laughs> well, it's most. So chances are. Yeah, uh, I think it was. Um, you never give me your money. Do you have an uh, issue? Yes, with that dog book? it. Y- yes, definitely. Well, yeah, yeah. It's, he has. You have to agree. He makes a good point that all of most of the things that these guys went through. They were the first guys to go through. Yeah, you know. No, dog it has lots of good ideas. He just. I just think he gets some fundamental stuff wrong, but he has a lot of good information. He was one of the first guys that made me feel very sympathetic towards Paul in that whole situation and that he was the one kind of keeping the trains going. I just think all these little things that happened in their career, there's not a lot of precedent for it. There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of history to look at and go like, Oh, let's make sure we don't make that mistake. Yeah. I mean, so many things that happened in my early career I was so grateful to have people that were a little older than me that had done this before that could say, Hey, you know, watch out for that or don't do that or do this. And, you know, there was just not a lot of that going around. I mean, everybody was ripping some, I mean, Dylan's getting ripped off by Albert Grossman and, uh, you know, there, there's, there's not a lot of heroes looking out for people (laughs) like these guys at the time. They're, they're they're young, slovenly, long-haired hippie rockers who, you know, the the guys in the three-piece suits are just trying to get as much money out of them as possible before it all goes to shit, right? Like Yeah. And that's I what think- that's what John's fighting against is like, you know, the fat men in suits that are buying northern songs. I mean, these poor guys, they have no skills. They have no defenses against all of this. No, they're not educated to a high degree in any kind of yeah, you know, economics or anything like mm-hmm. that. They, they they don't have they don't have the yeah they don't have the tools or the equipment to to really understand what the hell is going on. Well, the Eastmans would have been good, probably just as legal advice, because given that they're married to Paul, they're not going to be trying to steal the money from the Beatles. I mean, well, Linda's married to Paul, so they're right. married into the family, but they also needed a manager, which Klein was more of. In terms of setting up projects for them and and guiding them a little bit more, and, and that could be the heavy because without without a Brian there saying no, we've got to go and do this album, it fell onto Paul, and that's just such a that's that's, that's a bad shitty, yeah, it's not yeah. A good, it's it's not fair because he also is in the band. Yeah, yeah, so he can't just be the creative that's like also rebelling when he's got this other hat on, and that's never a cool position to be the, the the keener that's pushing everyone to do it you know yeah i mean i think the other thing that you in the breakup series 
made uh, made us rethink a lot of this was that these were all kind of a lot of it was like a lot of small decisions, a lot of uh, it, some sometimes in, incidental decisions that just started accumulating into the direction that things were going to go. Yeah, and I don't think anybody would have thought that. And if you isolate a lot of these little things about, well, it sh- they should have had a manager or yeah. they should have taken a few months off. Like on, individually, if you silo those things, they're not huge earthquakes, yeah. but it just starts accumulating into something that can't be stopped. Yeah, exactly. That when we said it spun out of control, basically. And, you know, John gives a bunch of interviews in the 70s where he's he's really ruminating about it's like he doesn't know how it happened. You know, he yeah. was, he, he makes this, well, he, he was has whacked this, out on drugs. I mean, well, how yeah, can, you know, exactly. And I think that Paul and George and Ringo didn't understand enough what John was going through again, because there wasn't much precedent. They didn't know, right. you know, that you much know about, about that. addiction. Yeah. And so, yeah, I agree. And even something like the divorce statement you know, that Paul is now there. That's the smoking gun. That's, you know, John, John, John ended the Beatles. Right. Well, George didn't take him that seriously. I personally, you'd know this from listening, but I, I really think if Paul hadn't accidentally quit the Beatles and ended the Beatles when it did, I would put a lot of money on the fact that they would have gotten back together. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. John would have uh, never done it. I mean, John. John's saying I want a divorce. I mean, uh, two was a, a year earlier. He's saying he's Jesus Christ, right? That's like, right. So he'll. That's I'm exactly sure he's right. Prone to saying crazy stuff, and you know, he might have that. That could have been a. It could have been a, a, not just crazy. It could have been the way he was feeling, and yes, rightly so. But after that. Would there could there have been another meeting where Paul yeah. says, "I hear you. I'm feeling the same way. Things are really hard, yeah, uh, because of a lot of things. Do you want to do you want to figure out a way to make this work? What would what do you want to do? Do you want to make do you want to do the thing where we each make a, a, our solo album, or do the thing where everybody gets the same amount? You know, like what is there a way forward? If there's not, let's call it a day. But let's do it also. Like it's like can we do this the right way and like come out and yeah. make a joint statement about this? Like so many, you're right. So many little dumb things, mistakes or yeah. misinterpretations of that stupid interview he did for his solo album. Hmm. That's, that's really what, what was the death knell. But yeah, if you want to like say, Hey, the Beatles are taking a break. We're taking a break. We're going to do some solo stuff. Love these guys. It's been a great decade. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, be back soon. We still got, cause they still had to have the business of the Beatles exist. Yeah. Well, right? and that's the thing is I think if Paul had done that, had gone to John and said, you know, what do you need? What do you want? Because John, as we discussed with the 4442 meeting in September seems to be laying out a plan right. to go forward. And then, and, and then what? he gets, yeah. All right. Guess what? If, if Paul would have would have uh, let that happen, a it could have worked. Maybe it could have been a fine way to go. B yeah. it could have not been a good way to go, and that they would have gotten that out of their system to un- yeah, 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 understand yeah, exactly. that that's not that wasn't the right thing to do. And let's try something else, as they would do with all their projects, whether it was. Magical Mystery Tour didn't exactly turn out the way they wanted. Exactly, so and then they they corrected. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I, I think that if he had, even like you said, after John, it's like when you're in a relationship and you say it's over, you know, it doesn't sure. always mean you feel like that the next day. And in fact, in, in uh, an episode that's coming out, we talk about an interview that John gave three days later to Barry Miles, and he's very depressed. And that's just normal life. Like you're elated one day, you're really worked up, and then you get it out, and then you're kind of like, oh shit, you didn't totally mean that. Or, you know, and that's, that's the John that you see. And the problem is, is so many of these interesting interviews that he gave are kind of hidden. You know, they're not really known. And then, you know, some of these big, like crazy ones, like Lennon remembers is just like burned in everybody's memory. And there's a few, he gave a lot of interviews at that time. That's the problem. He gave gave a lot of interviews, like all through, I mean, except for those little, uh, you know, hideaway period, the fatherhood period. But he was, he was, I mean, I love, I love seeing when like he's talking to Howard Cosell yeah. on the, you know, he's going to the gate, like he's, he like, he loves, uh, he's a great interviewer and he's very, you know, seems to enjoy it. And, um, especially I think after the, after the sort of, um, confrontational period kind of, yeah. him, right. After his yeah. like, well, I'm an artist and you're going to have to take it take it or leave it you know those interviews <laughs> I'm are an like, artist yes exactly <laughs> but once he kind of just kind of settles into like well i'm just a i'm an older rocker now and i'm just a rock star and i'm you're gonna but yeah i think like it must have been incredibly uh scary and vulnerable uh to not have the beatles as what you did and again going back to this idea of there are no precedent for what it, what it, what is a solo artist after you were in a band? What does a rock, what does a singer songwriter do in his thirties now? Yes. Like, yes. Um, am I like, there must've been, I mean, I think all I can say for myself that like you do, for example, he does the, the peace thing. Mm-hmm. It's so funny to me that you never hear anything about that ever again, right? Like all oh, the way oh, yeah. through the seventies. That, that's what that's what Rob, but, Ray Connolly told me. He was yeah. like, "Oh, he forgot about that after yeah. about two years." Yeah, but he it's got like, bored. does in his dark as he's trying to go to sleep, does he go, "Man, maybe that was a mistake." Like not the peace thing, you know, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, maybe yeah. like the nude cover, like all that obnoxious stuff that he was doing with the him and Yoko, and like what, like does he think like? maybe that was, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Like maybe that hurt me. Um, you know, I think so. I think like in May Pang's book, she talks about how John would send her out to any kind of Beatle thing to see if there was two virgins albums and to to buy them. Oh, geez. That's really funny. Uh, (laughs) yeah. yeah, It's like so much. He was such a spontaneous guy and obviously like jumping into the deep end on everything as it came around. Yeah. But that with that comes often comes sort of like, oops, you know, like I didn't. That's right. And I think he expected everybody to forgive him. And the problem was that the press didn't forget, you know, that's like, um, how do you sleep? You know, for, for the next eight years, he basically was saying, well, it was just a moment in time. And I felt like it then. And, and I even posted something on Twitter where, you know, within three weeks, like imagine yeah. comes out and within three weeks, John is saying, well, Paul is the closest person to me in the world other than Yoko. Like, yeah. That's, and again, that's, cool. um, that's how like really close friends fight. But Paul was a little bit smarter about not doing that in public. Yeah. It bothers me. John was aware 
And it's just also lame that there wasn't anybody around John to be like, dude, come on. Really? Like George is there. George should have sort of been, I mean, everybody was pissed at Paul, I guess, but George, somebody should have just been like, come on, man. Ringo did. Ringo. Ringo. Oh, I didn't know that. He walked out. He's like, this is too far. And he walked out. And yeah. Yeah. Ow, that just gave me chills. Like think about that moment actually happening in life. Like, yikes. Uncomfortable. Yeah. And that didn't. That didn't wake him up. I know. I always find that like John is not surrounded by, by a great crew at that time. You know, there's an interview where he's like, I feel comfortable now because, you know, Spectre and Klein and Yoko love me. And I mean, it's good that Yoko loves him, but Spectre Spectre, and Klein. These are not who you want in your corner. No. no. And that, that explains a lot, you know? And I think that Paul and Linda had no one, like they were so paranoid and kind of pissed off with everybody that they, they isolated themselves too much. Like I always wish that Paul had had some guidance from, frankly, from PR, because he's not very good at it. And I think John, John and Yoko are so much smarter. There's so much, I was talking to a friend of mine who was an artist and, and has worked in branding for a long time. And we were talking about how John and Yoko just got the art of, you know, um, branding themselves much better than Paul. Oh my God. Did, I mean, you know, the, 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 the fashion, the, the white, yeah. the white, the white uh, suits, yeah. like the hair, the beard, the glasses. Yeah, it was very so, iconic things. And I don't yeah. know how, I mean, it wasn't the most, I don't, I don't want to say he sat down there with like a team of, you know, advertising <laughs> people to figure out the, what John Lennon is going to look like. I think it was just like a natural like there's people I know again that like are just good at that. They know yeah. they look good on camera. They wear the right clothes that makes them look good. That yeah. you know they have a that, sense of drama. Or they get they get making a statement. And Char- I think he, Paul doesn't yeah. have that. He looks kind of goofy most of the time. Like he's de- well, definitely has good looks. He's he's got good looks, but he's looking a little weird in that Ram period. Like weird. Oh no 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 no. Hair. I'm, no, I'm sorry. Wrong? No no no. You're very wrong. Sorry <laughs> what, about that one. Is that the um? What's the mullet period? Oh, the mullet. Yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah, you, you could be right with that one where he went sort of glam, but he's kind of a dad. Um, yeah, with that that mullet. That's like 73. 74. Yeah, like wings, wings to, on tour kind of. Look. Yeah, yeah. They were not. And Linda's funny because she's got such an amazing eye for photography, but the two of them couldn't quite get their act together in terms of like, this is where I wish they had like a stylist, those two, you know, because I think <laughs> right. their, their, their music's super cool, but they didn't get the packaging as well as John and Yoko. I got to say, I got to interrupt you. I'm looking at these pictures with the face paint and stuff. It feels a little like he's trying something, yeah. but it doesn't exact, it doesn't do what Lennon's able to do with his image. You know what I mean? Well, I have to disagree with that one. I mean, with the, it, with the face paint stuff, the I love cl- I love the face paint uh, stuff. I don't I don't say I don't love it. It's just it didn't click. It didn't it it didn't work, right? Because well, it's not like about a, Ram worked, right? It's true. Well, that's that's true, and and we love it. But uh, John was able to kind of like be in the zeitgeist of the moment. I guess. Yes, Paul was not connected to the zeitgeist at all, and that was a problem. John's always, uh, I think, had a better finger on the pulse of what's cool. And for example, for Imagine, May Pang talks about John and Yoko, especially Yoko, doing like 30, 40 outfit changes wow. before they shot a scene. Jeez. So it's it's not like they didn't know. 
you right. know, they, they were very aware of image. I like that scene in that. Um, I think it's that new imagine cut that I, the, 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 yeah, yeah, the one that's above out, yeah. us guy, where Yoko comes down with that cover design. That's got his eyes cut out and the clouds instead of eyes. And it's like, it's one of my favorite, like <laughs> uncomfortably bad, like, <laughs> Oh, like that's, but they knew that that sucked. Like, Maybe Yoko didn't and and whatever. We all present things that aren't great and it's yeah, never yeah. cool that it's on camera. Yeah. You see something embarrassing like that. But like, I don't know. That's kind of like, so they had, gr- they just had great taste. Like a lot they of did. The they had great they taste. Did. I think they had better taste than Paul and Linda. The thing is that I think John and Yoko were so good at that and they were aligned with the zeitgeist. So what they were doing was really cool and on trend. Whereas now when I look at Paul and Linda's pictures from the Ram era, I, I mean, I find that super sexy. I love the way that Paul yeah. looked at that time. I like the face paint. Like to me, there seems to be two parts to Paul. One that it's like this showman and this guy that's like this shark that's just driven. And then there's kind of the more artsy, hippy dippy yeah. side of him. And I I like that side. Of well, Paul. I like, yeah, I like how you were saying, uh, like Paul was walking the walk of the times, yeah. even though it wasn't in the zeitgeist. He was literally living in a, like out in the <laughs> yeah, farm yeah, yeah. and, you know, like raising kids, like having kids and and going vegetarian and like doing all this stuff that like the true heads were doing, like the real hips, hippies yeah. were doing. And John's still living in Tittenhurst and still. (laughs) I know, know, I know. And I don't know why no journalist ever figured out the hypocrisy of that. You know what really blew me away too is, um, and you know, you know, Phil Oaks. No. The the OCHS, the, he's like, he was like a Dylan contemporary and he was really well known. I know the name, but I don't know. He was real well known. He was much more of sort of like the news of the, like a headline protest writer, right? He okay. would write, his stuff was way, like it doesn't age as well because it's like stuff that got lost to history a little bit. Yeah. Right? But he's amazing. You should go down a Phil Oaks okay. uh, rabbit hole. Rabbit hole? Okay. But I will. He, he kind of had the war is over if you, if you want it. I like, that was his, I, that was kind of his thing. Yeah. Like he, he was doing that in, as a Vietnam protest in New York. Yeah. It was very similar to was it before John him? and Yoko. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was like the year before. I just remember uh, there's a documentary about Phil Oaks that I, that I saw and I said, man, that, I don't know if it's the exact same words, but it's pretty damn close. And it just felt like maybe it's a coincidence or maybe it's just like, you know, those John and Yoko were good about like reading the room and figuring out like what the cool shit is and, yep. and sometimes nicking it, you know? Yeah. I think, well, I think they did actually, even like the, the make love, not war that, that wasn't them. Um, yeah. you know, some of the, the films that we talked about this, that some of the films that Yoko did were, they're not original ideas. Right. They are, like she's doing Andy her Warhol version of it. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and so yeah, I mean, where John was incredibly original was like, I am the walrus and, mm-hmm. you know, all you need is love. And that, well, that Strawberry kind of- Fields Forever is like that. There's nothing else like that in the, I can't, there's, exactly. you can't compare that to anything. Exactly. I can and think so, of. Yeah, no, no, me neither. And so that's where I feel like John, like he's a, a real original. And this to me, I think this is why I don't like this period as much. It seemed like John was just leading an existing trend 
rather than just yeah. inventing something new. You know, like you said, they were really in touch with what was going on. And, you know, <laughs> Yoko even talks about their fans as their constituents. And we were like, <laughs> you know, that they, they really understand their, their role in the world, but it seems a little bit less artistic for me. Than- but how, I mean, I guess like how much, how much of that, uh, like when you, you have that ex- creative explosion from 63 to 68, let's say the, the, where the fire is burning so yes. hot. Yes. And so much of what you're doing is just working on a mat, just like a, just blowing it like out of the water, just huge yeah. nuclear stuff that's <laughs> changing the world. How that's much right, of that yeah. do you have in you? And at what point does that burn out and go, now what? I don't, I'm not going to just keep, uh, you know, uh, coming up with like culture changing stuff here. Like well, I'm going to have to sit back on some stuff. That's I'm gonna a great to, like, point. I'm going to just have to like either grow and go inward and uh, whatever happens, happens or start picking stuff out of culture and getting on the side of that thing, you know, uh, or try. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, it just, I feel like it's, it was bound, it's bound to happen. It happens to all of them. Uh, everybody has that. All the greats of that period certainly have yeah. this period. I mean, John starts playing old rock and roll music by 1975 or what, four or whatever it is. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It, they, be, they become very much like, I, I don't know what I have to offer right now anymore. Yeah. Like, well, and fair enough. You know, like, no, I think, I think that's a great point. Like sometimes when I look at all the crazy stuff that John did in 69, like with Yoko, I, I'm kind of like, it, I don't think that that's the lasting art, but I get as an artist that that excited him and stimulated him, you know, interested in him again and kept oh, him totally. engaged. So I think that that's what that was good for. You know, maybe John was running out of a bit of steam about the songwriting thing. And the problem was, I don't think Paul was. No, he no. was turning it on. It was, yeah. he, he had, he sort of like, I think took a turn into what was happening culturally, musically, which is singer, songwriter, Randy Newman, piano yeah. playing ballads like you know that that's like the direction paul's going john can't do that like john's not equipped for that i mean i guess a little bit and well yeah he did I a mean, lot of that in the 70s yeah in, that, i mean in imagine there's how and yeah imagine there's certain like jealous guy i guess yeah but oh yeah even real love or free as a bird like those are all like piano like yeah. i like the original versions of those but you're right that is more paul's thing and I think that like you can imagine if you feel like you've given, you've been hugely creative and you don't have a lot and you've got this partner that's just like, oh, great. Now you're like, oh, good. A better song that you're bringing in now. Like now you're <laughs> now you're on fire. Yeah. It would be exhausting. But I, I can understand as Paul, like when he's like, ah, no, I've still got so much stuff. I need this band. I need this band to help me bring this to life. I understand why he'd be like, just hold on. Like, let me get some more stuff out, you know? Because he said in interviews that he um, didn't know what he was going to do with his music. Like, he didn't know what where it was going to go. John or Paul? Paul said that. Paul said that. Like, yeah. he would just be like, well, I'm going to just write music for Mary Hopkins or whatever. What's yeah, I guess so. I guess so. But I felt like, I feel like he still wanted to perform, you know, and wanted it to go out as the Beatles. And if the Beatles wasn't there then yeah, I mean, he could have just become a songwriter for other people or a producer. I mean, he could have done anything, but 
You know, the other side of this is if if this hadn't gone the way it went, I don't think they the Beatles would be talked about, thought about, idolized uh, the way that they, the, you know, the the legend would not be the same. It would be they they if they if they had gone on, right, right. You know, like the 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 way the story went is part of the reason why we all are talking about it, right? It's true. It's true. I mean, that's the interesting thing is the breakup, you know, we, we've said this, but I really believe it, that the, the breakup is complicated and we've been sold this sort of version of it that doesn't really sit properly because we are all kind of like, yeah, okay, what really happened? You know, if, if it actually made sense, we would kind of just move on um, and just say it's right. a pity they broke up, you know, but there's something that isn't quite right. But I think that knowing how productive they all were until about 74, 75, I think, yeah, they probably could have continued to put out magic. Maybe they wouldn't have had the, the cultural, you know, power that they had, yeah. which again would have la- diluted. I don't know. I mean, you, I guess what can you do? You can look at this, the Rolling Stones. They had a pretty good run of records in the 70s. Uh, yeah. But, and they kind of adapted a bit to the time like they they were making records that sound like 70s records they're not a throwback band in the 70s right 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 right. yeah i think the beatles had more in them they could have gone for another like personalities and issues aside just musically creatively they had a lot more to go i mean you know i've spent all this time looking at the breakup and it's not to say like if only they hadn't broken up they broke up what happened before you or i were born and um you know, so I'm not crying that it happened. It's just like, well, why did it happen? And my conclusion is that they didn't really mean it to happen. And probably if they'd had a break, but Klein is a major reason too. I think a well-managed with good sound tour Yep. with, uh, with Billy Preston and, you know, a, a horn section or something and, yep. you know, a really well put together not, you know, maybe not a arena, I guess an arena tour. Uh, that would have been a whole different story. That would have, you well, know, you done know, right. He, yeah, I agree. Like John gets so excited after they perform on the roof. Um, and yeah, so because, I, I, and by 1974, is it 1974 or five when John Lennon's on stage at Madison Square Garden? Yep. Like that, that's four years later. And that that's already... Like the rock concert as we know today is is now now exists for them to to have yes as their stage right well I mean Wings tour is a is a is a modern rock tour with it all is. the good sound right yeah like, yeah and I yeah and they would have, they, they could have been all, they could have I mean they could have just done that for the rest of their lives and made records on their own <laughs> like they don't they could just come together as a touring band. Uh, like, right, all know. the magic kind of happens in the studio, but can you imagine Paul and John and Linda and Yoko all traveling together? I mean, <laughs> I, I I can picture the other guys and their wives because they, you know, they were chill. Well, they chill, would just, but... you know, they'd figure it out. They'd travel separately. Yeah, There'd be, probably. That, you know, how do you think Fleetwood Mac got around? You know, they just <laughs> made it work. But... Well, that, that that tour, like when John gets up on the stage, you know, he, he plays – I saw her standing there and yeah. he gives a shout out to Paul. That was really when they were close to getting back together. Right. You know, that's almost when John goes to New Orleans and And then Yoko he, says no no. Well, yeah. I mean complicated, I, I know, but yeah, yeah. I mean it's very complicated because John goes back to Yoko and continues to see May. So Ooh. 
Yeah, I mean that's that that uh, late period uh, Lenin. I mean, you know, the, the his last five years are another. That's a whole other uh, s- series that you need Chapter. to do. Like it is actually because it, it's so complicated. It gets it continues to be complicated. And was he get? Did he get back on the drugs? But he does seem to be close with. Sean, it yeah. does seem to, like there's periods where you see, well, the guy looks happy. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, I suspect it's a bit like from what I can tell that it's a bit of both. Like I think he went through very depressed. He went, there's a lot of support for the fact that he went through some depressed periods then. He should have like, I get John taking a year or two off at that point. Like I get. I he need to clean up. I mean, from all that, yeah, like the partying with Nelson and Harry, I mean, and uh, Keith Moon and all that, like. That seemed well, like you needed to dry out a little bit from that. Well, I just did an episode on this for Egg Pot. And so I went deeply into 74, 75. Um, and that is a bit of a misnomer in that John was really in with Harry and Spectre and all that kind of craziness in LA. But then he came back to uh, New York in the spring of 74 with May Peng and they rented a place and he really was pretty clean until he went back to Yoko the next year. And so even that, John and Yoko, they they really, they workshopped their separation when they got back together. May talked about that, that he was still seeing May after they got back together. And he'd be like, sorry, I'm going to have to say this in the press. And so, you know, that's the hard part with John and Yoko is there's a lot that I love about them. And then sometimes I'm like, why did you guys have to spin everything so much, you know? And why did they, I mean, was their relationship that uh was it a business was it a was it like built on on the perception of it more than what than a true relationship should yeah well yeah i mean i think partly but i do think that yoko gave john protection and he talks about how scared he is all the time and i just think you know and and i have to empathize with all these guys like they're all so vulnerable they're so famous you know and yeah so John having somebody who Yoko's tough, you know, that he, I don't know. I don't necessarily personally see them as that soft, loving, romantic couple, or even particularly sexual. Like it seems like he had that chemistry with, with May more than Yoko, but she did provide him something. I think he felt very special with her and taken care of and, you know, right. protected with her. And, and she ran his business. Right. That's what Ray, Ray Connolly said. She was his manager. He, he believed that she had his best interests. And she must have gotten better at it too, because she, you know, when she comes on the scene, she's not particularly helpful in any way and isn't equipped to know about the business of rock music or entertainment or anything. So when we first, when she first enters the picture, she's not uh, an asset for anybody really. (laughs) But it seems that she becomes, I mean, she's incredibly intelligent. And I, there's a lot of things I like about her. Yeah. Um, And clearly she says, well, let's figure out what, how this, it's not rocket science. Like you, if you dedicate yourself to, and you're in that position, you're with the, you're next to John Lennon. Like you could figure out how to do the, do the, do the right thing for him. If you yeah. want to, you know, yeah. uh, and get, get around the right people and do things right. And when he comes back, it seems to be working. They do the, the, the record works and 
the press is good and right. I yep, mean, yep. Yep. And so she's, and apparently she's made them a whole ton of money on cows or whatever it is. Real <laughs> whatever like, it is. I've never dug into that. I don't, I don't understand the cow story, but apparently it is a real thing. They, so she, yeah. I mean, I like that. You have to think that Yoko changed throughout that decade as much as anybody. Um, yeah. Her, I mean, her priorities certainly change. Like she's doesn't, seem as interested in the art aspect of it. Although she does return to that in the eighties and the nineties, like, you know, her life outside after John is, I think very connected to the art scene of New York and, you know, it becomes sort of like a a matronly figure for a lot of bands, a lot of like very interesting, you know, art like left of center weird stuff. Yeah. Um, That's why I like Yoko. You know, there's one thing that there's a couple things that I love about Yoko. It's like, you know, I don't know if anybody ever realizes that Yoko's like a 37 year old woman when she's sitting in Let It Be. Like she's not a kid sitting right. there with him, you know, and the fact that she's not a musician either. And she starts a music career at like 38, kind of, you know, I used to think, well, that's ridiculous. But now I'm kind of like, it's cool. Like Yoko put out some awesome albums eventually. Yeah. And she just is very determined to she never kind of let um, social norms get in the way of anything. You know, it's like, no, I'm going to be a pop star now, or I'm going to be, you know, I'm, and she's not afraid of being weird. Not so, afraid of being weird, but also, I mean, I know there, there were bumps in the road between her and Paul and all that stuff. And it, she, there, it's not a perfect relationship, but she's made, she's made sure a lot of things in the past, in the post John Lennon, you know, the way we experience the Beatles, she's a big part of making all that stuff happen. And mm-hmm. she seems to have managed it pretty well with the other people. You know what I mean? By and large, like there, I'm sure there are mistakes. I'm sure there's things that she didn't want to do that she agreed. You know what I mean? But like she could have probably sabotaged a half a dozen, dozen cool things that we got to experience if she wanted to. Sure, 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 sure. I mean, they they need Yoko to make that stuff happen. And she seems to appreciate the Beatles more than she did in the year. Like she, she seemed to appreciate, the more she got to know what they had done, like there's even accounts of her in the 70s, like liking Sgt. Pepper when she went to go see the show. And she was like, oh, well, it is good music. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of like she, it's not like I think that Yoko didn't know the Beatles, but I do believe she wasn't deeply knowledgeable about their 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 music. I do think she's incredibly um, competitive with Paul in terms of like she wants Lennon Ono to go down as the better partnership. That's my, my reading of it. Yeah. That's easy for us to say that's ridiculous. Uh, Probably harder for her to be, you know, just like any, like anything, like when you're in the middle of it. It's true. That's so true. You can only see it her way. That's so true. I mean, she loves what she's done. Right. And so, you know, so that's her opinion is that what we did and, you know, she, I think, Yoko's a huge idealist. So the idea of the world peace and being like the lead, that must've been such a thrill. So. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think speaking of the way she felt about the, how great the Beatles were or something, it's, it's again, you have to remember being at that period, there were plenty of people that probably just thought the Beatles were, shouldn't be taken as seriously as, we do now for sure. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, at yeah. the time, like the Beatles, yeah, yeah. The, the rock group, you mean? Yeah, uh, sure. 
they're very good at what they do. Uh, anything else? You know what I mean? Like, why do we, why should you care if they're like, why should you take them seriously? Yeah. It wasn't a given that the Beatles were going to last. Like they thought they were just going to be forgotten, which is so weird, but apparently they just thought that, you know, the Beatles day would pass. And, you know, like a lot of the bands that we can't remember from the eighties, you know? Sure. And I mean, not much yeah. was kept. I mean, like, you know, you had, luckily a lot of stuff was, but uh, the, you have the albums, but and the films, but I don't know. It didn't, it felt like, you know, the idea that's, that we'd be pouring over these old t- TV interviews and <laughs> magazines and stuff. Felt, like I that know. probably would have seemed pretty silly. I know. And it is quite amazing how things seem to have shifted maybe in the past, like, I don't know, probably 10 years, but five years. Um, how, like, for a long time, it seemed like there was a battle of, like, the Beatles were always, in my opinion, like, considered the best and, you know, slightly different than the Stones or the Who, but there was always a bit of a competition between all these bands. And now it's just like the Beatles seems seem, in my opinion, to have separated themselves mm-hmm. from the rest as being like the, the one, it's, they're kind of like the Shakespeare yeah, will go down. they're canon. But I mean, there is still always, I mean, maybe you're right in the past few years, but there's always sort of that, like, actually the Beatles suck kind of that <laughs> school of jerkness out there. They're like, uh, it's like, yeah. but that's just, that's ignorance. And that's like, come on, you're just, you're just being intentionally, uh, you know, trouble, trouble, trouble. Yeah. It's like a troll move, but there are people that obviously don't like the Beatles. Who cares? Right. I mean, of course. Yeah. I don't care. I was telling somebody recently that I had a Beatles podcast and she was like, frankly, I don't think they're that good. Mm -hmm. And I was like, frankly, I don't care what you think. Like, I just, (laughs) okay. Like that's fine. It doesn't bother me because they're awesome. So I don't really care what you think. I just think like, I do love the music and everything, but I just love the story of it and the dynamics and the personalities and the cultural, you know, the, how it ties in as a history buff, like just how it it just, like I said earlier, it's like the greatest story ever told. Um, and frankly, I could go months without listening to a Beatles record lately, you know, like I don't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you don't need to go. It's not like, like one thing I don't put on is the Beatles Sirius XM channel. Cause. Oh no, me neither. It's like, I hate when they start playing like the, you know, little Richard or something. Cause it's oh. like, this is what the Beatles were listening. Like, I don't really want to listen to little, little <laughs> no, Richard. No. Exactly. I heard no. it once. It was good enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I would. I don't listen to that kind of thing either. Uh, whenever we're focused on a particular period, I go really deep into the music of that period. I'm sure, like you, I've been listening. When did you start listening to the Beatles? Like, how old were you? Uh, you know, like for real, like 15 or something like that. Yeah. I mean, before that, it was like just in the air out there, but not like, yeah, 15, 14, 15, probably. And did you go really deep at that time? Yeah, I mean, I, the what I remember is uh, my dad had gotten a bunch of tapes because it was like the first kind of car to have a cassette player in it, I guess, that we had or whatever. <laughs> but, um, and he had the blue cassette, the 67 yeah. to 70. And yeah. my first reaction, I still very, it must have been eight or nine or something, but hearing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and thinking it was the stupidest, silliest <laughs> sounding thing I'd ever heard. And we used to make fun of that picture yourself, you know, like doing the nose. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, we just thought it was lame. Not, but not lame, but just like, what the hell? You know, like, uh-huh. what the hell is this guy? <laughs> and then something about it kept going on in my head and I just got interested in it. And I got, for Christmas, I think I probably got a couple of tapes. I got like Yellow Submarine tape and a couple 
I think Sergeant Peppers, I think. And I think my grandmother got me like those Beatles dolls. Oh my God. Uh, just like a, wow. It was like a weird couple of years where I was like, this is what I'm into. And before that, like the summer before, I would have been into like Rat and Poison and Motley yeah, yeah, Crue, yeah, yeah. Oh, whatever sure. was, yeah. which is whatever was on and MTV, yeah. you know. Yeah. And then suddenly it was this, and you could go to the mall and go to like the record store uh, slash like you know, I think it was some place called Hollywood Video, and you would get like I bought the complete Beatles tape. That was that hour documentary. Yeah. That uh, basically gave you the whole story. And then it was just off to the races from there. And it just became like you could I'd get books and I would get, uh, of course, all the records. But it, it was right around this time that the CDs came out, probably a couple of years later. So then, OK, now I know what to do. I can buy because the tapes were a mess. So the, the album, it was a big deal. I think I also started getting Rolling Stone. And, you know, as soon as you get it, it's, it's like the best gateway because as soon as you figure out you like that kind of music, there's there's everything else. There's the Pink Floyd and the yeah, Led Zeppelin and absolutely, every, yeah. And and of course we had classic rock radio, so that was that was reinforcing that. And all those things were all, especially in the late '80s, early '90s, there was a big 1969 20th anniversary of 1969 was 1989. So there was like, you know, tie dye came back and the. I remember that too. And it was just like, it was a very retro couple of years. I remember that too. Like the Beatles were, you know, I I don't know if any of my friends liked it except me, but there was stuff around. Yeah. A lot of ephemera. Like it wasn't very well managed, but it was, it was out there and it was like, oh, these guys, you could start, you could get into this as a fan thing. You could start collecting things or buying there's shirts. Of course there's like that John Lennon, uh, New York shirt or, you know, like, all that stuff is sort of out there in the in the gift shops and whatever, you know. So, yeah, it started there and, you know, it, it's just so much there you can dig into even back then. I mean, Luke, my, the big one I had that I really loved was the recording diary that Mark Lewison's recording di- every day, right? Yeah, the day, you know? day, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, geez, that was just, I mean, you just learn so much about how to make stuff and how things are where does all this stuff come from? And, um, you know, so yeah, that's my backstory. And then did you, like, I, I did that period too in my teens and then went extremely deeply then into the music, did all the reading and then kind of like over listened to them where I just needed to take like a 15 year break. And then, you know, every once in a while, they're so good about this. They come up with something and then they get you again. And, you know, it had been long enough that I was like, Oh, I love this. You know, so good again. And then the story sucks me in. It's like the music gets me back in. I love it. And then I get sucked into the story because there's such, you know, I remember reading once that somebody said the, the thing like John and Paul would put up with a lot, but the one thing you couldn't be was boring. Right. And I feel like none of these guys are boring. They're all just so fascinating, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think I definitely went through that where it felt like I got to listen to something else. This guy's driving me, you know, I feel like I'm, I need, I need to figure out what's going on in the, in the right. world of music now yeah, and all this. Yeah. Stuff. And then like, I remember in the, like in my college, like 96 or something, then it became sort of like I think Radiohead was out, and yeah. they were, and you were there was this feeling of like, oh, you know, what's a great album, Revolver, and then suddenly mm-hmm. it was like, well, Revolver is the greatest album ever made. There was That's that right. whole period, yeah, yeah, 
you know, that, and that it, was the Brit pop kind of like yeah, the, the Brit, resurgence. The resurgence. Yeah. And then all, yeah. and then I was suddenly uh, the cool guy who knew about the Beatles in my <laughs> group. And they're like, Oh, actually uh, that's some, that, you know, you guys were all listening to hardcore uh, punk and I couldn't take that stuff. I thought it was boring and, and now they're like, oh, I'm actually into that uh, Rubber Soul album now, man. It's pretty good. You right. know, I'm like, yeah, I know. Yeah. But um, yeah. And then the, I think in the past few years, I mean, just the, the amount of material that that came out with all the remasters, um, you know, I, there's a pot. I don't know if this is a jean jacket guy for you. I don't know. I, I, let's I'll see. Um, the um, something about the Beatles guy. Um, Robert uh, Rodriguez. Robert Rodriguez. Yeah. Uh, I would say that Robert has one foot uh, planted in new Beetledom and one solidly planted in Jean Jacketdom. That's I can, my opinion. I, I, that's fair. Uh, but I didn't. I I, I would say uh, he might. I don't think he's a direct entry into this podcast because I just found it randomly through a friend. But yeah. um, I did start listening to his podcast a few years ago, and I. It's just like. Again, I said on that interview that you saw from me, it's just like, it's endless. It's it, there, there's, is a, there's a pointlessness to the, some of the discussion. <laughs> hey. There's uh, no, but in a great, in a great way. I have to agree with that too. Yeah. And, and the, these guys can go on and on and, and they get into the, the ephemera and the very fine details of things. Mm-hmm. And it just, it's the onion that you keep peeling. There's nothing, there's no end. And, uh, um, so that so that I feel like there's another era happening now in the past few years with all the remasters and the movie coming out and the podcasts and the endless amounts of uh, interviews and um you know the footage that just keeps getting uploaded all over the place that you know it's it'll true. never end. It's such a good it's such a good time to be a Beatles fan. You know, I I can be very critical of authors the one thing that I'm critical of is getting the Lennon, like, for example, with Doggett, what he does do is right at the beginning, he sets up the Lennon-McCartney relationship and he takes a bunch of Paul, you know, 1990s interviews about John where he's very loving and then takes a bunch of stuff from Lennon Remembers. And I think that to me always <laughs> right. sets sets a book off wrong when you don't understand that they were fairly equal. They had their, you know, they were both strong in different ways. So that's my issue with Doggett. Um, but he has tons of good information and I can be critical of authors, but I don't know if they had access to as much stuff as we have. Like there's so much, yeah. you know, random small interviews from 1973 that, you know, that are actually really important statements that, oh, like John said that he would totally get back together with the Beatles. Well, nobody knew that. So I can't really blame them, you know? Well, this is the new, and, and on uh, Robert's show, I think, I don't know who it was. Some woman was on who was sort of a, a history historiographer is historiographer and i actually had her on my podcast too I, actually i bet i bet and that was great too because it talked about or just the idea of talking about how we how we document history and that uh and how we get it wrong and it, it's it's just a constant yeah, attempt yeah. to try to get the the fullest picture possible and it's yeah, never going to happen because it's never the re- reality of the of what happened, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always true. an and interpretation it, of it. Yeah, that's Erin Torkelson Weber, and I had her on, and we had a great chat. So you know, you should I check pre- that out. I will look that one up too. <laughs> you, you'll you'll like it. I think I, we're kind of looking at how the story was told. She wrote a book called "The Beetle, uh, the Beatles and the Historians," or "The Historian and the Beatles." Oh, right. Or yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And, and I like her a lot. And I heard her for the first time on something about the Beatles too. So even though I, I talk about Robert having one foot planted in each space, I do really enjoy his show. And I think I just great, can't hear so. that theme song anymore though. That's real. No. Yeah. Robert, <laughs> please update <laughs> your theme song. Um, I know it's true. It needs to be redone. But anyways, I heard her there. And then, um, then I had her on my podcast and we had a great conversation, but she made the point that revisionism in the Beatles world is always considered to be a bad thing, but it's not. You revise when you get more information. Sure. It's not, it's so when they use that as a, like Paul's being revisionist, it's like, well, if he's just inventing stuff, then that's bad. But if he's got more information, if we're looking again at something, then that's really a good thing. And she said, typically, you need to be about 50 years out from an event to be able to tell a history properly. Right. So that, that suggests yeah, that we're right around people, now. To, yeah. And too many people are still alive, actively like changing the story. I mean, not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but yeah, you need distance. And I think, again, just to like your breakup series should be considered in that in that uh, canon of like histories of the Beatles, because I mean, just what's the difference between a book and that what you got, you know what I mean? Like it's Ooh, it thank should you. Be quoted or sourced as, as, as into the future as people like uh, continue to, I mean, what is these, what is the like market of the Beatle books anymore? I mean, like how many can, how many, I mean, they're just going to keep getting written and yeah. they're going to keep getting stuff wrong. And, yeah. you know, yeah. so like your stuff and I mean, other people that, that go deep like this in this sort of nonlinear doesn't have to fit in. Like you're, you're saying about Spitz saying he had to cut 900 pages out. Well, why? There's, I mean, I know there's exactly. like practical factors there, but if you're buying a book about the Beatles, you probably want it to be as long as possible, right? Because you're dork. It's true. Don't they know we're crazy and want yeah. every bit? Like I said to him, I was like, oh, aren't you so pissed off right now that Lewison's considered to be like the real deal because his book is so big? And right. he was like, yeah. But uh, <laughs> but thank you for saying that about the podcast, though, because I think we actually probably put more research in. I, well, I'm sure we put more research into building this series than most authors do in terms of like we spent a couple of years researching before we did it. And wow. I don't think there's many authors that spend two years on one year. of. I mean, it is insane. I know that. I agree with well, you. I wonder, I mean, and, and insane. I, wonder if, I wonder if you've considered like because there are very central uh, really strong and I think revolutionary themes about the way we think about the Beatles in there. Yeah. Maybe there's like a, something to think, maybe another project to like, to like the abridged or, or at least, you know, like, uh, the breakup for dummies or something. Yeah, like that. You know what? I think that's a great idea. And I think, um, you know, we were trying to present, um, research constantly. So if, if, I, if I don't have to do that, if I can, you know, just not have to support everything that we say, then we could probably tell the story a lot quicker. Just like, this is, this is our point of view on everything. So I do think that's a good idea. I listen, I mean, and again, you know, I, I listen to it all and I love it all, but um, we're not, you know, there could be, a <laughs> big there could be a big <laughs> audience for just like understanding the breakup from a different point of view. And also like a feminine, like a, like, for, like you, you keep talking about this, like it's very rare to hear a woman talk about this stuff. 
And, it is. It and is. It, it was really refreshing uh, to hear it from that perspective. And it, it, it provided, honestly, a different you know way to think about it, be, just, I think, be, partly because of that. Right. Um, well, we said this once, and I, I think we probably cut it, but it's just like sometimes I think that writers have been nerdy, you know, journalists, and they don't always have the best sense of what people with yeah. some power do, you know? Yeah. And it's that's like the a lot of these people that are really interested in the in the the music of it and the pop culture of it and the history of the times and everything might not have the emotional intelligence to get deep into what's really going on with these guys and think about right. that a lot of these authors might not be coming at it with oh, the yeah, yeah, yeah. sensitivity to yes that's right to really you know, have an appreciation for some of the subtleties of the personalities right. involved and the psychology right. of it. And Yeah. I'm happy to have them digging because it is such a dumpster fire of like lack of dates. And I'm constantly trying to put together like pinpoint dates so we can be sure. I actually had some conversations with Barry Miles, but like he gave me things that I could hang my hat on. I'm glad those things are confirmed because, right. you know, there's a lot of things you can't confirm. And so you kind of need to have some of these little posts that, okay, we know this, we know this, we know this. So anyways, but I'm happy to have them doing that. I just, I think it's a hard job to be able to say, is there a different way of looking at this, you know? Right. I guess it's good. Like you said, it's good for certain exhaustiveness of the of the librarian, like the the whatever you'd call, you'd want to call it. Yeah. The archival kind of information yeah. is great. Yeah. Yeah. But, but like, I want to dig into India because there's a lot that happens yeah. in that first half of 68. And it's like, it's just this, this period that is pretty well unknown. You know, you know what's a funny little um, artifact from that is, and I, you guys really get into this in the beginning of the breakup thing, but that trip to New York and that the the film it's that that appearance on the tonight show yep is so uncomfortable and so lennon in particular looks so just shell-shocked a little bit and also that that press conference too they're very they're very nervous and like and it's not like them to be it's not like no. to be that way he changes his and you and you talk about why that is i think and sort of the, the crisis he's having at that moment. But you really see it there. It's like, it's just very strange. That to me was very instructive. Looking at that, that interview that they do with Larry Kane, um, where Paul's yeah. like, he's up and, and John's down. And it was just like, wow, something happened between that. Like there, there's just like a shift mm-hmm. in the chemistry between Lennon and McCartney. There was always like a really, they were relaxed with each other. One of the things that I noticed that John always looked at Paul in the other interviews, like they're looking back and forth, but you know, John looks at Paul a lot in the early interviews and, and Paul's always looking at John too. But in this one, John start, like, it's like John turned away from Paul and Paul looks to me as a woman, just looking at it. Paul looks to me like he's trying to make up or, you know, he's, he knows he's fucked up in some (laughs) some way and he doesn't quite know what, what he did. And so, you know, but, but there's something like when you study the Beatles, it's all of a sudden like, Whoa, okay. Something just really changed there. And I don't know what it is. And that is the John Lennon that you see is kind of like irritable and angry for a while after that, you know? Totally. 
So I don't know exactly what happened in that. We don't, we can only piece together hypotheses, but I think we can conclude that something changed in their dynamic. We do know some stuff. We do know that John did take acid and um, say that he was Jesus Christ and get together with Yoko all within a day, which is crazy. And had also thought he had found Jesus Christ in the Maharishi and was completely disillusioned and disappointed by that experience. Yeah. Also probably had to have felt maybe a little guilty that he dragged everybody down there. Like in some part of him being like, I'm the guy that leads this band and I just led us into like a really, like another, uh, like not exactly like... uh, I mean, maybe a little bit like his thing with Jesus where he, you know, oh, yeah, gets yeah, the yeah. Band exactly. Death exactly. like some of that's got away on him and, and the guys are very cool about it. Like Paul's there defending him and speaking up for him and saying that like, I'm right there with you, buddy. But it's got to be stressful in the back of his mind and on his nerves and in his adrenaline feeling like, man, I keep getting this fucking band in trouble. Yeah. You know? And I'm, I'm, I'm an idiot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah I agree. I think, me. I think George felt some guilt too about that right. because that was, that was, was a George. Dual, yeah. It was a dual led initiative. I think Paul liked it, but he was just, he was not the leader of this trip out there. He was like, it was good. I got my month. I was out of there. But right. you know, John does say later that when Paul and Ringo left, and I think it was probably more Paul because they understood why Ringo left, yeah. that that was the beginning of the end. You know, I think that hugely yeah. disappointed John. So there's stuff going on. And this is not to promote this. This episode will probably come out after the episode that I'm just going to release. But we talk about a really important interview that John did um, right after the divorce statement. And he kind of explains what kind of like hell he went through for years, feeling insecure and like he was no good. And, you know, so when he leads them to something like this and it's a bit of a failure or they're made to feel badly about it. Yeah. I think that would make him kind of reinforce any suspicions or concerns that he had. I mean, yeah. In real time, You've got, sure, they're making good music that people like and that sells well, but Apple's not working well. Uh, You know, they had made Magical Mystery Tour that didn't, that people weren't happy with. Like these guys aren't, as much as we've now created the, 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 you know, they're legend and legendary and uh, enshrined in history. (laughs) They were in real time during those periods had lots of stumbles and, uh, wasn't always just a given that everything they touched was going to turn to gold. And, you know, there was no guarantees that the music would live on and be yeah. loved and also be marketable and something that would keep making the money. Like, so I, yeah, I mean, it's really, it's, it's almost impossible to put ourselves in their shoes and feel how they felt, but I can imagine that there's no way for them to have the perspective that we can have. That they yeah. can't, they can't have the perspective that what they're doing is timeless, that it will be perceived differently in the future, that they're absolutely guaranteed, uh, you know, to be re- regarded as geniuses for all time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, yeah. they're yeah. in the middle of it. They're in the thick of it, and not, no, there's no guarantees. Yeah, I agreed. And I think that that's why uh, one of the reasons why John created the the John and Yoko. I mean, I think he was stimulated by her, and but I think that John had an eye to. I need another place to land. I need to have, you know, if this goes bust, I got to have somewhere else 
some other kind of brand, you know, I, I don't think Paul was as good at figuring that out, or maybe he was just too invest. He was too busy. I don't know. But I think John did have an eye to like, John is a survivor, except when other people went after him. But I think you see even in the, the last weekend, the John pulls himself out whenever everybody else is drinking, he pulls himself out and is like, okay, enough. Right. He apparently got really afraid by Harry Nielsen blowing out his vocal cords. And he was like, I'm not, I'm not doing that to my voice. You know, you kind of think of Lennon as being kind of out of control sometimes. Cause no, he was, the- he had, he, when he wanted to, he could tighten up and control everything. Exactly. 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 I, I, the other thing I just thought was they also had so, they had very limited options because, because of how cool they were. And that was such a big part of who they were that they couldn't just, they the, the moves they had to make had to be smart moves that were cool and special. Yes. They couldn't do, a, like, and they knew this, and they knew that they couldn't go and do Vegas like Elvis. Yeah. They couldn't do, you know, some, where the easy money was, right? They had to do things carefully and and cool. Yeah. <laughs> I keep saying, that, saying yeah. cool, but... As soon as you give that up, that that cred, that it has to come from an earnest place. I'm not saying cool, like you know, artificially cool, like and like it, like the audience is going to see if the Beatles are are shelv- are shoveling bullshit out. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. They have to do. They can either do what's coming from them. In the case of whether it's John and Yoko, like you know, uh, lying in bed or what, whatever it is. Whether it's get back, or, like it, if it's not that, it's not. It's gonna all fall apart. So what do what do they do? It's, they kind of run out of options. I think. Well, they, no, I think Paula offered an incredible option, and this is always ignored. But I think the showing up and playing places yeah, would have been the coolest totally. thing in the world, and it would have been really good for them. And you you're know, in right. the breakup, it's always like just like oh, John says you're daft, and but I'm always like oh my god that. It was a genius idea. Yeah. And that could have grown that could have grown organically and naturally into like the Madison Square Garden show. Exactly. Exactly. Right? I think if they would have just popped up and then because they had to figure out a way of not having pressure on them and not being the thing. Like they need to to be able to like gel together again and have fun. And I think that would have been like that would have built their legend, you know, just to well, have it's true. The, the downside of that, though, is it, it it does become a bit of the John and Paul show again. And does Ringo and George go along with that when really they have different priorities, too, right? Well, that's the problem. And that's the problem. It's not so much fun for them if Ringo's now like, I'm the drummer in a band that plays clubs now. Like, no, I want to go act or have my own record. You know, like they have options that would make that idea much more uh constricting for them so yeah i mean that's a good point like even joshua shank who i interviewed uh who wrote the powers of two a a book about partnerships creative partnerships he talked about the fact that or in his book he said it actually wasn't lennon and mccartney that he said they still had a desire to create together everything around them was crumbling like everything that kept them balanced was falling apart around them which You know, it's true. Like, even though Paul and John could get the chemistry together, they had managers pitting each other against each other. And then you've got the situation where Ringo and George are both like, well, what about us? You know, we're not happy just being behind you two anymore. So it's so it's so hard to see how it could sustain with that all that going on. And 
I, I also, like, having done stuff for over uh, about 15 years now, there's that, there's, again, there's that initial fire, there's that drive, that is not, it's, it's all consuming. It, it becomes harder to do the thing as opposed to 10 years ago when the thing was all you could do. <laughs> yeah, it's you true. Know? And, and it's... especially, especially when you know how involved it is too. Mm -hmm. It is all consuming and you can't necessarily always do that or you don't have the energy to quite go there. But um, yeah. I do think that they would have gotten, like, I think Lennon and McCartney would have had an easier time getting together, you know, like we talked about in the early 80s. Like, they needed to work out their chemistry before they could get back as a foursome, you know? We'll never know. Okay, I have a couple of short questions for you. Yes. So, um, what is your favorite look in terms of um, eras? <laughs> what is your oh, favorite boy. look for the Beatles? I'm going to go 68 uh, White Album. I think everyone's looking pretty good. Yeah, it's true. I'm just true. thinking of like uh, that picture of Paul, a picture of John and Paul where they're writing, where yeah. he, he's looking over. Man, they both look real good there. That's true. I, I have to agree with you. That's a pretty good period. Although I do love the Sergeant Pepper. Oh, I was going to say well. it could be my least favorite with all those, really? the satin. The satin. Are you talking about the actual costumes? No, not the costumes. Oh, just okay. that period of. Yeah. The, I, I enjoy. <laughs> no, no, no. I, like, I enjoy the pretty. Those do not hold up. <laughs> Although they hold up on the album cover. I would I like love to there. know if there was any moment during that when they're putting those costumes on where like one of them was like. What are we doing now? What is this? <laughs> Why are you know, we wearing like... this? <laughs> yeah, it's a good. It's a good thing they were the Beatles. Yeah. Um, but I love the must. I love their. I love their mustaches. They are the only men who I yeah. love in a mustache. <laughs> they pull it off. What do you think? What do you think? Who uh, looks best in a beard? Hmm. That's a very good question. I know it's a good question. It's important. I'll. 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 I'll say Paul. Because it's an impressive, dark, thick, uh, good-looking beard. John's beard's freaky. It's freaky <laughs> how fast it grew. That's exactly what I always think. I'm like, how did what did that come from? These? Where did we saw a picture of him like three weeks before that? Yeah, he had no beard. There's nothing. It's then there's stubble. Then there's just Santa Claus. <laughs> It's so true. Ringo's had the beard for the longest. I think he wins that that award for long longest wear of wearing a beard. Like I quite like I quite like him with a beard too. Actually, I think that Ringo did sometimes look good with a beard. George, I don't know. He had some weird ass stringy. beard. Yeah, He's stringy. stringy. It wasn't good. I did like John when he kind of was in his Jesus period, where he had a shorter, like a better kept beard. You know the the. Abbey Road beard was a disaster. I mean, John looks nuts at that period. But <laughs> he that's really what he's going does to... look like. Who is that guy? Like, who, who is that fifty-eight-year-old? Yes, yeah, yeah. So weird looking. Yeah, but then he looks better after that. Um, okay, so we already discussed mullets. I would suggest, based on what you said, that you were not a fan of Paul's mullets. No, not not that Wings over America period. No, no, that he doesn't look good there. It's kind of like. I don't know. I don't think he looks good there. Okay, so which Beatles wife or girlfriend would you go for? Hmm. 
I can't picture all of them at the moment, but I'm always intrigued by um, the way people talk about Linda because I don't, I, she must be, I think she might be a person that just doesn't photograph well. That's, you know what, those, that's what a couple of people have told me. In that it? hippie yeah. ram period, it's like, and she has some weird hair stuff going on, but like, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know. I have no comment on that one. No so. comment? Okay. Fair enough. Um, Cynthia. Cynthia in Cynthia. the 80s. <laughs> with those <laughs> dark, with those dark sun, with those weird dark glasses she <laughs> <I know>. wears. <laughs> I know that wasn't a great look. Um, okay. So is there a Beatle whose solo career that you like the best or that you follow the most or, you know, are you not really a big solo Beatles guy? Um, I, first of all, I love that in this era of streaming, you can just dig into all these records that I'd never had growing up. Yeah, and know yeah. about. I really didn't know much of this solo. I'd, I sort of had the best of John Lennon. I probably had wings, some kind of wings record. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, I, my, I, I, all things must pass and living in the material world, I think are just top notch. I mean, I think living in a, in the material world is way, way underrated. Record. Yeah. Yeah. The I second agree. record is such a beautiful, there's so many, I mean, there's just a few like stunners on that one that mm -hmm. are so pretty, so, so uh, nicely, it's more contained than all things must pass. Yeah. Um, Lennon's solo stuff is like pretty much drops off the cliff after Imagine for me. I don't find a lot to love in anything uh, else. Walls, really? and I mean, Walls and Bridges like, is so good. I would, I'll, I've tried, it's just too many like saxophones going on. I agree. I agree. You have to let go of that. There's like some seven, 70s cheese on that one, but the songs are great. Yeah, they're, they're, it felt like right after 72, they started trying to capture what was on the radio a little bit. Yeah, much, yeah, they're chasing it a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and not the other Paul record, so much. And not Paul. I mean, and I like, I love Ram. I said I love Ram. But for me, the record that blew me away about 10 years ago that I just never had growing up was Band on the Run. And I really just couldn't believe what I was hearing when I got into the deep cuts of that record with Mrs. Vanderbilt yeah. and Bluebird and, uh, 1985. You know, yeah. So like good. I was like, what the fuck? Where has this been my whole <laughs> life? This is as good as any other Beatles record, you know, like, um, I know, I know. So, it's like, how, how come nobody talks about these songs? Yeah. Mamumia. Yeah. Love it. So good. Love it. And I don't, of course heard jet and band on the run. And yeah. Million, and it's sort of, it's always fascinating that, like, do you know the band Fanny? I do not know the band Fanny. Oh, my Fanny. God. Wait till you check them out. They're, okay. If you go on YouTube, they did, yeah. they're did. they an all-women uh, rock band from, like, 1970. Okay. And they rock so hard. They're so cool. They're so good. And I'm like, why the fuck didn't they play this on my local classic rock? Right, right. Like, why didn't I right. know about them? Why was I listening to this other group? You know, like, why was I, I subjected to Foghat? You know? <laughs> Seriously. So, oh, my God. I, I look forward to checking those guys out. Yeah, yeah. Anyways. Next question. How excited are you about the Let It Be film? Tempered excitement. Um, I the, the trailers have been beautiful. I think it, there's going to be... We can talk after about the Disneyfication of the story. Yes. It's obviously not going to be the story that we know. Why would people want to slog through that? 
depressing. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't exactly. think could, there's going to be a lot of Alan Klein in that documentary. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing is that I don't know how many people have seen Let It Be. For all the discussion, like how many people have really seen Let It Be? The, the, the original movie. Yeah. It's a tough watch. I mean, it's just not yeah. a lot of fun. It's uh, a bit of a, it's, I mean, when I was growing up, it was always some weird bad copy off of TV, VHS. Yeah, you know, me always, too. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'm excited. I'll certainly consume it as soon as I possibly can. Uh, yeah. Well, me too. And uh, are you going to read McCartney's book? And Probably are you- not. The the lyrics thing? Yeah. Not from the way you've been setting it up. <laughs> I know. I'm really not selling it well. I mean, I, like I didn't this. even finish the three, two, one thing because I just thought, I, I don't know what you thought of that, but I just thought like, I don't think these guys are really connecting very well. Um, Rick Rubin and Paul, like I didn't feel, and if Paul seemed a little bored. He was chewing gum the whole time. And it was yeah. Just like, well, it gets I, a lot better. That's the problem with it is it gets, I didn't really enjoy, I watched the first one. And I was like, oh no. Yeah. And then the second one was better. And then it really got better after that, mm. unfortunately. Like they shouldn't have presented it in the way that they did. Yeah. Because the first one was a lot of the same stuff. And it's like, yeah. oh God, I can't listen to this again. And then and then it got a lot better. And there was some really cool stuff in it. But I read an article that Rick was like, you know, trying to propose a new way of talking to Paul. He's like, well, what if I talk to you about your bass playing? And so they'd start to talk more about his bass playing actually, which is interesting. Yeah. And um, he said that Paul was like, oh, okay. And Paul, Paul's team was like, well, he'll give you a couple of hours. Mm. And it was the same thing with this book is again, I talked to, um, I talked to a source and he said, I think he felt the pressure to do this and he didn't really want to do it. So he just let himself be interviewed. And it was like a free form, like whatever was in his mind. Like it's a stream of consciousness. It's not an autobiography. And that's disappointing because I think people are going to really read into it. Well, that's my, that's the thing with him is like the past 10 years there, there does feel this like, why are you doing all this? Like he, I saw this thing where he was doing all these, um, like face uh, Instagram interviews with like the, you know, the Foo Fighters and the, <laughs> yeah. and St. Vincent and all these young artists. Yeah. And you tune into them and it's like watching paint dry. It is so <laughs> boring. There's nothing to say. There's no, there's no connection between these people. There's weird technical problems. You know what I mean? And it's like, what are you doing over there? Yeah. Well, we're just hanging out, you know, trying to get it, get through it, you know, just, Actually, I was looking at the newspaper, reading it, and uh, <laughs> how's it going over there? You know, like, oh God, you're why, just go like you're so much cooler when we don't get when I can't just turn on my phone and see you blabbing to Dave Grohl, yeah. you know, and and that's how I felt about the three two one, and also it's like, well, what is there to say about your bass playing? Like, what is there for you to say about it? That is well, going to be because somebody else might be able to talk about, it, but for you, you're just you're 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 talking about a baseline you played 50 years ago one day and you wrote it then like you didn't intellectualize it then. Like I hate talking about my own work sometimes. Cause it's sort of like, it's for you to just talk about it. It's not for me. I did it. You guys go and have fun talking about it. But all I can tell you is I plugged the bass in, I played the line and this is that and that and doom to doom. And yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to make it good. We're only four. There's only four instruments here. So of course the bass is going to do more than it would in a normal, like I'm trying to innovate, blah, blah, blah. But like, he's not, there's not much to say, honestly. You like, 
No. And that's the thing is that every interesting point in the rest of the episodes was from Rick Rubin. Right. Like he, he would pull, pull out like, what, look at this. How does this baseline exist? And, you know, what were you doing here? And Paul would say that kind of thing, like, well, I don't know. I was just playing it, you know, and, it, but Rick would add something that was interesting. Yeah. And so that's why I think like, I'd like to see Rick Rubin with another producer talking about Paul McCartney's bass playing, you know, yeah. that, that Paul was quite generous about like George Harrison and George Martin, especially George Martin later in the episodes. And I enjoyed that. Like yeah. he's better when he's talking about, other about people. somebody else. Sure. I mean, that yeah. would, I'd love to hear Paul McCartney talk about Stevie wonder or talk about, you know, uh, George Harrison, you know, that yeah. I'm into, but when Paul is in that position where he has to, he, he has to, he has to own his material and be like, that's actually good. Isn't it? <laughs> like, oh my god and oh he my does god. that like not bad not bad you oh know? my god <laughs> oh, i know it's, it's so like, painful mm. because he doesn't have the language he's such an intuitive artist he doesn't have the language to explain what yeah. he did when rick was playing him waterfalls which is another revelation to me of, of how great that song is and like how ahead of it's a pure yes. i mean but waterfalls is just like Whoa! This sounds like this could be. You could put this on the radio now, and I think mm -hmm. Rick Rubin says that Paul doesn't know that that that's a great piece of work. Like, no, he's just like, yeah, that's a, yeah, yeah. Cool, <laughs> you cool. like that? You, I like that. Like, like, yeah, yeah, cool. Then, like, don't talk to him about his stuff. Yeah, I know, but, I know. Like, talk yeah. about horses or vegetarianism yes. or. Yes. Like and I'm interested when he talks about the world or like I'll listen to a podcast where he talks about anything but himself or the Beatles. Well, he does himself a great disservice by focusing on the Beatles because he was such an interesting artist after the Beatles. John always hit on, you know, his peace activism and it sort of gave him another identity. So you think that John's greatness wasn't just connected to the Beatles, but for some reason, Paul doesn't understand that if he romanticizes the rest of his artistic career, he does have a great career. He's mm -hmm. an artist, you know, like talk about his painting, talk about his horseback riding, you know, just like he did right. live an artistic life. Stop yeah. talking about the friggin' Beatles. We'll talk about those. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it to us. I'll tell you, I'm going to do a podcast where I provide a, a review of McCartney's book. Um, you know, yeah. he's done 15 big songs already. And I, I was literally panicked after reading the 15. I was like, oh my God, I think Paul's insane. <laughs> this is painful. Right. Because it's it's not like I it's not like I believe what Paul is saying now is the truth. It's like if I felt like he was being really revelatory and open and you know, like, oh, well, he's finally telling us the truth. It's not. It's like a stream of consciousness that is right. a jumble of his other stories. Well, you know what? I've got 30 years of your other interviews. Well, also, it might be posthumously will be interesting to maybe hear from people that had close a closer relationship with him that maybe will speak a little bit more candidly about a private side of him that we don't know as well. You know, there's this one of the authors, I think it was Larry Kane, who said that Paul and his family are so private that they will not let anyone that's close to them talk to mm. the press. Like if you want to be out of the McCartney circle, you talk to the press. And he said it's bad because only people that have beefs with him will talk. Right. And so you don't get any representation. Even in the Beatles story, Jane didn't talk. You know, his first girlfriend that he got pregnant, mm -hmm. Dot Roan, she doesn't talk. Jane doesn't talk. Linda didn't talk. 
And so we've got like Heather Mills and then that woman who wrote the, you know, spent a month with him and wrote a book about him. We've got these kind of disgruntled opinions. And so I don't know how seriously to take their point of view. Maybe it's true, but you know, whereas with John, we've got like so many of the people around him, you get kind of a good understanding from Pete Shotton and Cynthia and May Pang and you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that was a good chat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It was a lot of fun and um, I hope you can uh, make sense of it. (laughs) (laughs) I am sure I will make sense of it. Well, we'll do it again either way. And thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Tim. Such a pleasure to have you on. There's so much going on in the Beatles world. I assume we'll be back soon. Yeah, we'll be back very soon. So please everyone subscribe or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at One Sweet Dream Podcast. Also, Tim and I discussed the breakup series throughout this episode. If you haven't checked out the breakup series, please do. It starts with a two-part series uh, called What Happened in 68. Also, as a reminder, the breakup series was done with Phoebe Lord, from the podcast Another Kind of Mind podcast. So please check out Another Kind of Mind podcast as well. Also, please check out Tim's Kitchen Tips if you're looking for some new ideas for cooking. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe and give us a shout out on social media or leave a five-star rating or review of the podcast so others can find it. And also, we'd love to hear from you. So please email, tweet, or message us on social. That's all for now. Take care. W.